And ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the prosecution is not going to get that man today. No. Because I'm going to get him. This is the Hagler Report for today. It, it is Friday. Friday. That's right. Friday, December 15th, 2017. I want to welcome everyone to this edition of the Hagman Report. Have a great show lined up for you. Hey, you can see us tonight. We're, we're streaming live on video at YouTube Live. We'll start radio network as well as blog talk radio BTR. The fine folks there. Uh, got a great show lined up for you today. Right out of the gate, Charles Ortel. A lot of, a lot of, uh, you know, he is, he's such a, a great intellectual, uh, great investigative researcher, intellectual, uh, author. He's a private, uh, a private investor and a writer. He's been exposing multinational nonprofit fraud since 2007. This guy has been, and he's really been making headlines of late. In, in particular, um, with respect to foundation fraud. And this is something that, that it's going to be, it's going to be really enlightening the first hour with respect to the Clinton Foundation and the offshoots of that. You know, the fake news, of course, that you're not hearing about, and you're not really here. We, tune to CBS, NBC, ABC. Are you hearing anything about the, the Clinton Foundation? No, of course not. And the, the, the fraud of that corporation? Of course not. So Charles Bertel is going to be coming on here momentarily. And then, of course, we've got uh, Doug Papa, the third hour. In the second hour, we've got Lori Handrahan talking about uh, an epidemic, America's trade and child rape. It's going to be a fascinating show tonight. So buckle up, buckle in. Personalized broadcast brought to you by Omaha Steaks, omahasteaks.com. If you want a great, and I mean a great gift for that special someone, or if, if you're having a hard time buying a Christmas gift for that person, it's hard to buy for. Or, or, even better, buy this for yourself. Go to omahasteaks.com in the search bar, enter HH. There, you will, what'll come up is my family gift pack for under $50. You get a, just a whole lot of food. The food is delicious. I'll tell you something, it's fantastic. That's omahasteaks.com. HH in the search bar, more on that later. Now, um, again, Charles Ortel is coming forth, forthwith and, um, but but a lot of other information as well. I, I committed my morning show to a, somewhat of a timeline of the surveillance apparatus, and I'm going to tell you right now, it's going to it's things are going to get ugly. In fact, that's how I titled my show. Things are going to get ugly. Um, uh, look, I'm I'm seeing a coup in progress, a coup d'état, uh, the craven abdication of of what it needs to be done by the by the uh, uh, Attorney General, by the Department of Justice, and a cold intent for a coup here in this country. So that's what I'm seeing. Joe, I'm going to toss it to you. Oh, man, there's a whole bunch going on. Don't forget, go to HagmanReport.com. Check out all the interesting information that's posted up there, as well as Peter Chauka's latest article, which which shows the... Uh, Clinton Comey Mueller scandals explained in 323 words, which is a transcript from it's Greg right, Garrett. Yeah, yeah, he did a great job in doing that, by the way, Joe. Yeah, and, and uh, in fact, I had played um, 
We probably played the same clip. Uh, I played a portion of that. I had actually dug it a little bit differently uh, today in my show. But but anyway, uh, without any, I don't want to take a minute away from Charles Ortel. Charles Ortel, again, is he's, he's a private investor writer who's been exposing multinational nonprofit fraud since 2007. He, he's been uh, following a career in corporate finance. Uh, mergers, acquisitions, investment management. And since early 2015, Mr. Ortel has been investigating state, federal, and foreign filings of Bill Hillary and, uh, Bill Hillary and Chelsea Clinton Foundation, as well as those of the many affiliates of that entity. And that's, that's a full-time job for a team of people, let alone one person. And I've been following Mr. Ortel's work, uh, his incredible work, in my view anyway, his revelations, his investigative work is, is for quite some time. Now he's appearing um, with uh, uh, Jason Goodman, Crowdsourcing the Truth, on Sunday, Sundays with uh, Charles. But also he's got his website, charlesortel.com, and of course on Twitter, you can reach him on Twitter at Charles Ortel. Mr. Ortel, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, please call me Charles, and thank you. Well, I'll tell you what, it's great to have you. You're one of my favorite people to follow um, in terms of your investigative work product. It's second to none in my view. Uh, you've, you've done so many things, so many revelations, educated so many. Um, anything I left out, anything that you want to tell tell the audience before we get started about yourself? Well, not really, just that I was fortunate enough to retire in 2002 at the age of uh, 46. And um, so I spend my time doing what I like to do. And one of the things I feel very, very strongly about is that good people across the political spectrum contribute of their time and of their purses and wallets to support the numerous charities. And that activity really separates this country from many others. So when I saw... By chance, somebody came to me, and when I saw that this Clinton Foundation was the largest unprosecuted fraud in history, and when I see now that even after all this work and all these appearances, state's attorneys general are not shutting this thing down, the Trump administration has not yet shut this thing down, and people haven't paid the price that need to be paid. I just have devoted myself to this. I hope, and thank you for giving me this exposure on your great show, uh, I hope that people, that the public pressure will now mount and uh, that with the passage of this tax bill, Donald Trump and others can turn their attention to doing right by the many donors and many people who play in charity land and do so, so much good work to expose the Clinton family for the fraud that it is and to stop the Obama Foundation from following the same path. Exactly. And you pointed that out, I think, uh, on your on your appearance last Sunday, this past Sunday with uh, on CrowdSource, the, the, the Truth. And, and, of course, you also spoke about Corin Brown, who uh, suffered a fate um, with a 50-page uh, sentencing memo, which was a clinical recitation of uh, charity law, essentially. Um, anyway, uh so this is a huge topic, and people hate this when I ask this, but where do you want to start? Because there are so many places we could go, and I don't want to ask a question that's going to just be off topic or, you know, so where do you how can how can we start this? How can we best start this to serve your revelations, your findings, and to serve your purposes? Because you've done such great work. Where, where, where do we start? 
Why don't we start, if we may, with the great people of the FBI. Donald Trump was over there, I think, today with the rank-and-file agents. Um, and there's been this brewing debate as to how does Trump feel about the FBI? Is he supportive? Is he not supportive? And I'd like to profile some wonderful people at the FBI and, and give a resource to your viewership that should ignite a firestorm of new interest in doing what's right here. And that's to discuss the FBI book. That is. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yes. So, yep. Go ahead. The, the F- the FBI vault file so far has two separate releases uh, that are relevant. One has to do with the William J. Clinton Foundation. That's two separate, they call them dumps, um, of documents. And these are uh, original meeting notes and other, other memoranda and pieces of information still redacted concerning the uh, actual investigation that really did happen between February 2001 and early in 2005 when... Uh, the FBI and the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York, uh, by September, it was uh, Mueller as head of the FBI, and by December 2001, it was James Comey leading an investigation with all the might and resources while George W. Bush was president. This team could not discern the obvious fraud that did happen and escalate in that time frame, culminating 18 November 2004, when, believe it or not, this team defrauded all of us and defrauded the National Archives while they diverted $60 million from the Clinton Foundation. They also made dramatically false and materially misleading accounting uh, pronouncements and filings right under the nose of the FBI <laughs> and and the, the, the Justice Department. And, you know, then uh, in the latest stuff, and this is, I just went through this actually in the last 24 hours. I haven't fully wrap my mind around it yet, there's a second set of information uh, relating to Hillary Rodham Clinton. That's 16 dumps. It totals 1,656 pages. I really encourage you and your staff and your viewers to go into this. It's all online. And boy, oh boy, does that explode the Clintons. What? Okay. How, many t- how many times did you hear when this email investigation, the server investigation came to light? How many different times did you hear Hillary Clinton and her surrogates and Bill Clinton say, as part of a normal security review, this isn't an investigation, no grand juries involved, it's a matter, it's just normal, it's policy wonk stuff. How many times did you hear that from March 10th, 2015 until the election? It it, it was, yeah, it was a constant, okay, yeah. It was a constant refrain. You know what the truth is? The truth is that on July 6, 2015, and that's in these dumps, I would start with dump 16, and there you see clearly in in that uh, long list, it's uh, over 100 pages of documents, there you will find out that on the 10th of July, 2015, so before even before the primary started, three months before the first debate, um, by the 10th of July 2015, the FBI had opened a criminal investigation into the mishandling of classified information, specifically targeting Hillary Clinton and Uma Abedin on March 10, 2015. Thereafter, a grand jury was convened in the Eastern District of Virginia, and you will see 1,656 pages of documents and uh, summaries of meetings, summaries of raids, 
where they seized information, summary of what they found, summary of what I think are gross illegalities. And you'll see that the brave men and women, the line agents of the FBI, they wanted to, to expose this. But I, it, it strikes me that what really happened here is that the Justice Department, people in the Justice Department, Loretta Lynch probably, and maybe even higher than that, up into the uh, White House, Valerie Jarrett perhaps, um, made a decision that the FBI would go through the motions of investigating, but nothing would ever come to a head before the election because the DOJ wasn't going to prosecute. That's what I think you see in all this. And we don't have enough time to go through 1,656 pages of, of detail, but I will tell you, you know, if you're familiar, and I'm sure you and your viewers are very familiar with uh, the whole long chain of events here, you will see the Clinton rationale exploded, and you will see uh, an obvious new set of questions, which is how, how could the top people in the FBI put up with this? How could they become part of this fraud? How could they do it? How could they think they were going to rig the, the, the primary? You know, maybe Bernie Sanders and his wife were willing participants in a charade to just go around the country and pretend that he was interested. Why would Bernie Sanders have said in the first debate, which I think was around October 13th or so, 2015, why would he have said that he didn't care about, quote, the damn emails? Uh, when at that point, the FBI, as is obvious from these notes, was rampaging, interviewing people right and left, pulling exhibits, flying around the country, um, combing through all kinds of stuff. They had concluded that, you know, the, the, emails that supposedly were handed over, all of the work-related emails that you know, after months of foot-dragging and months of intervention by Williams and Connolly and David Kendall and the, the various people who, who enable these Clinton frauds, um, maybe you could argue they're part of this vast criminal conspiracy. When they turned over 30,000 work-related emails, 30,000 pages, which were supposedly all the work-related emails, didn't take our team, our loyal team of field people to figure out that that was a total why they found other examples of classified emails, and this was a full-fledged criminal investigation, which it would appear, under Comey's watch, was basically quashed. And uh, you know, right when just as Hillary had cemented her role as being the the the, the Democratic nominee, the people quashed the uh, Comey and others quashed a full-scale prosecution, and. Um, you know, this to me, it has to, we have to study this. We have to get deeply into this. I am not a lawyer, but I consult with lawyers, and I can tell you, you know, this has to be made a case study of what you do not do when you're in, in power the way the Clintons were. I mean, imagine if they would do this kind of stuff when she was just a candidate, what they might have done to us, what sort of a tyranny we would be living under right now. Probably we would, we and the viewership wouldn't be, wouldn't have our freedom had Hillary been elected president and uh, her team been allowed to do as uh, president and as a cabinet what they attempted to do as a candidate. This is really something, I can tell you. Well, this is like nothing we ever have ever seen. And just back to your point on Bernie Sanders, what is also curious to me is how uh, he did not really raise a stink about the primaries being stolen from him. You did not see him in the, on the news, uh, you know, urging an investigation into this. He kind of just rolled over and let it happen, which goes back to the point you made. Maybe he was, uh, you know, just there, uh, to go along for the show and, and that's all. But we know that he also bought a, a vacation house 
uh, summer home, as soon as the election was over, leading many people to ask the question, was he paid off for his silence? You know, he did not raise us think about those. So was he serious about running for president? Uh, back to the, to the emails, the DOJ, the FBI. Do you think that the, the, uh, credibility of the FBI has been tarnished to the point of no return with this Clinton matter? No, I don't. I, I think what has happened is that, uh, and I only know, uh, racking my brains here, I only know one person who was in the FBI. So it's tough for me to make a character, characterization about the FBI. But what I do know from people who have interacted with the line people in the FBI, not the political hacks, but the line people, um, those are wonderful human beings. I mean, this investigative group that we have uh, risks their lives for each and every one of us. They don't, they don't go and say, well, I better not check on this person over here. He might be a Democrat or a Republican or not aligned. No. Every day they walk out of their, their homes, their apartments, Leaving behind people they love, whether they're, you know, married or single or whatever. Um, and they go out and really for not very high compensation. I mean, they're not paid $225 or $500,000 for half an hour speech. You know, the very few people in the FBI make $225,000 per year. And yet they go out every day. Um, and, you know, they don't know whether in many cases they're going to come home. You know, people die in the line of duty. They get harmed in the line of duty. They, they work under great tension often and, you know, in, in harm's way all over the place, not simply in the United States, but around the world. These are fantastic people. I think what has happened is that the, the bureaucrats uh, in Washington have gained the system across the party lines, Republicans, Democrats, doesn't matter. The people who find their way to that, uh, I, I guess you guys are not in Washington, D.C. I try to stay as far away from that too as possible. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, the, the people who go down there, um, they have lost sight of who works for whom, of what a reasonable compensation level is, about, you know, how life really works. And I think the top people, certainly this Peter Stroke guy, uh, McCabe, who's, I guess, the effective the manager of all the FBI, these people, you know, who rise into the level where, to, let's say, together with their, their partners, they're making half a million dollars in government service or combined income, and then they're in a position maybe to leave the FBI and get lucrative work and maybe options or whatever as a director, as an investor in these security firms. Those sorts of people, we've got to stop the argument that uh, the American public is not allowed to know what is done on our behalf to protect our safety. I mean, I love these people at the FBI. We might have we temporarily lost them. Lost the connection with Charles Ortel. While we work, while we work to get him back, uh, visit his website, charlesortel.com. That's charlesortel.com. And follow him on Twitter, at Charles Ortel. And you can catch him Sundays with Charles on, uh, with, uh, uh, crowdsource of the truth, I, I believe, uh, every Sunday. But, uh, fascinating, fascinating stuff. Do we have him back? All right, he's back. Hey, about that. Oh, no worries. This, this is my this is this is my phone, and somebody just called me. I apologize for that. <laughs> it happens. Uh, <laughs> well, but but so, so what I was saying is, you know, we can we can admire these line people in the CIA and the FBI and the security services, but I think we have to admit, looking back to September 11th, 2001 forward, um, that what we may have done here is um, is to give in a little bit too much to the impulse 
that says, we don't really want to know how we're protected. We'll just let the deep state protect us. And let's not put ourselves in a position where we can ask the tough questions as to what war should we be fighting and how should we be fighting and what constitutes success. We've allowed the deep state too much latitude, I think. And it's time for, you know, a serious discussion of what our national objectives are, what resources should be given to, to meet those objectives, and how well actually are we doing. I, I, I totally agree. And, and by the way, all the FBI agents I know, and I've worked with, uh, uh, worked with a, a crew, actually a, a, a team of FBI agents back in the mid-90s, uh, as an operational asset. And I, I gotta tell you, they were stand-up people, stand-up guys. Um, so, so I, I echo your, your sentiments with respect to the FBI and also even, even some members of the Department of Justice at the, um, the working attorney level are just fabulous. So, um, now, but getting back to the Clinton Foundation, because this to me is just an, an incredible, uh, it, it's just, I, I, it boggles my mind. The, are, are, are we just looking very simply at the politics of personal or self-enrichment with respect to the Clinton Foundation, uh, using government uh, positions to garner, you know, that, that, uh, uh, whatever you'd call it, the, the garner favor among, uh, among people? I mean, is it merely just the politics of self-enrichment, or is there some, something else going on here with respect to the Clinton Foundation? Well, the Clinton Foundation is, it's, uh, we, I think one of the Sunday withdrawal shows that we did was Catch Me If You Can. Uh, the Clinton Foundation has been, it started as a small fraud while Bill was president on October 23, 1997. I think people realized it had some experience uh, uh, raising money for the first legal expense trust, and they realized, I think, history will show if we are allowed to get into this in depth, that you could articulate the need for money. You could say that uh, you were going to use that money for an intended purpose. But if the IRS was gained, if the Department of Justice was gained, nobody would really know how much money actually went towards the first legal defense trust. And then when that was wound up towards the Clinton Foundation, nobody would really know. So initially, I, I say to people, you know, it's not what's in the books where you want to start with. That's not where you start with. You start with trying to figure out how much money did gullible people and did people who are willingly trying to uh, trade their money for influence with the Clintons, either to get things or to not be prosecuted, how much money was sent towards the core Clinton Foundation and then towards all the satellite Clinton entities and affiliates around the world. And then when you guess that, then you look at the books and you say, well, how much did they declare they actually received? And I think the first theft, the first diversion is in that moment before you look at the books. Then people like me, you know, I'm not... I'm not trained as a journalist or an investigator. I'm trained as being a financial uh, deal doer. That's that's really what I did between 1980 and 2002. Now, to do that, you have to read and you have to understand math and you have to understand business and geopolitics. But, uh, you know, I'm not somebody who, who, as I say, trained in the FBI or CIA or anything else like that. So I'm somebody who... Uh, after I retired, became very concerned about the, the direction of the global economy and the bubble that I saw exploding in 2007 and eight. Terribly complicated company, General Electric, that is in the news, and I called them out for bad practices beginning in August of 2007, and I think I was proven right, and even now, I continue to be proven right on that very, very complex fraud. 
This, to evaluate General Electric's books, um, you know, required a lot of time and effort and a lot of familiarity with accounting and inside and outside the U.S. Fortunately, I have that experience. I can tell you categorically that the Clinton Foundation, though it is required to have been audited by an independent auditor, has never validly been audited by anybody. Though they trot out these pieces of paper that have the word audit on them, they are not compliant. And no, nobody from the Clinton Foundation has ever dared challenge me on that. Nobody has successfully challenged that assertion. They just recently filed yet another false and materially misleading document, which they claim is an audit. It is not an audit. And even as we speak on this broadcast, Bill Clinton and others are raising money to get more money towards this fraud. You know, that, in a nutshell, the simplest thing here, you could you contrast, or you look at that sentencing memo that you discussed uh, for Corinne Brown, mm -hmm. who is almost the same age as Hillary Clinton, right? Almost the same age. She was running for office. She had been in Congress, I think, for she was trying to go in for either her 25th and 26th years or her 23rd and 20th, I forget which. But she was running to be a member of Congress again. Her district had changed, so she was it was a special election. Um, but same age, and around the same time that that uh, I'm now referring to him as Dopey James Comey uh, made the decision with the evidence that is in there on the FBI vault file for you to see, he made the false decision that that Hillary shouldn't be prosecuted and that any investigation should be quashed when at the same time the U.S. attorney in, I think, Jacksonville, Florida, decided to prosecute uh, this Corinne Brown in the middle of her contest. Obviously, she lost. Uh, she, she didn't acquit herself in the way she challenged prosecution. She treated it as a joke. And she was convicted on 18 counts, including fraud and, I think, conspiracy and other matters, and she was just sentenced by a, a judge at age 71 to five years in federal prison over an $800,000 charity fraud. This thing, the Clinton Foundation, just the core of it, not considering affiliates, is over $2 billion. You know, and, and Corinne Brown was just trying to be one of 435 representatives. Hillary Clinton was, was going to run the United States of America, possibly lead the, what's left of the free world, or what would have been left of the free world under her leadership, and, uh, you know, she would have, have had the ability to pack the, the Justice Department, to pack the IRS, to pack the FTC and the SEC, and then to try to pack the courts. Um, how can you, how can you sentence Corinne Brown, an African American woman, uh, a Democrat, by the way, not a Republican, how do you sentence her to five years in a federal penitentiary at age 71 and not even investigate the Clintons? It's just not right. Well, yeah, I, I'd say yeah. Corinne Brown, by the way, is seventy-one, I believe, and uh, uh, gaming the regular, uh, uh, gaming the regulations and controlling the regulators is where we would have been, I'm sure. Um, okay, wow. Uh, by the way, with respect to that, you had mentioned uh, the, the different states, Florida. Can the states attorney, the uh, uh, states attorneys general, can they? Uh, can they launch any type of investigation? Do they have that authority as opposed to, we'll say, the um, Justice Department? Uh, well, it's the, it's the reverse. The way it works when you get a charity um, done, a federally tax-exempt charity, you start in a, in a state. You guys are down in Florida, are you? No, we're in Pennsylvania. So. Pennsylvania, right. Oh, well, that's a good one to pick up, pick up then. So in Pennsylvania, it, this 
Clinton Foundation, the core ones, was formed in Arkansas. And um, when you when you file for your state exemption, you file your original paperwork in Arkansas. You then have to put together an application to the IRS, which is, is, is filed on Form 1023. That application, you're laying a marker down as the trustees of the foundation. You have to tell in that application, which is really detailed, you have to answer all the questions completely. You can't omit a material fact. You can't be misleading. Everything you say about your background, the qualifications of the directors, the executives, et cetera, must be true and complete. And you've got to articulate purposes that comply with the relevant statutes. You then, the IRS doesn't give you, it's not like a driver's license where they say, hey, uh, you, with this driver's license, you can drive anywhere in the United States, and if you get an international version, anywhere else, and we won't ask you what type of passenger car you're going to drive, because it's a passenger license. Any kind of car, it's fine by us. No. With a charity, you have to only pursue your specific purposes. So if you get approved by the IRS as an Arkansas charity, all you can do is solicit for donations on a tax-exempt basis in Arkansas. You want to do it in Pennsylvania, above a certain... Uh, small amount, you've got to fill out Pennsylvania form. You want to do it in New York, you've got to fill out New York forms in California and Illinois, etc. One of the things the Pennsylvania forms talk about is, have you ever had any experience using a fundraiser and gotten into trouble for doing that? Well, the answer is that almost immediately the Clinton Foundation got into trouble, first in Mississippi in 2001, but they were using a fundraiser that has gone by various names, and they, that fundraiser was disciplined in your state, in Pennsylvania, in 2002. And the Clinton Foundation continues to try to hide that fact across the country. The nice thing about this, the web of state laws is that they all refer to each other. So if you have a, a violation in one state, most other states say, you got to tell us about all your violations. Clinton said, refuse to do that. So every state in the union should shut the Clinton Foundation down for its ability to fundraise on a tax-exempt basis, and a conservator should be appointed. Now, meanwhile, the FBI and the IRS should be investigating this Clinton Foundation. It is not that complicated. You know, it really isn't. The rules are very straightforward. I challenge any accountant listening to this to go out and, and tell me I'm wrong, that there hasn't been an audit, a legally compliant audit of the Clinton Foundation. For one thing, the audits that the Clinton Foundation did try, the audits and quotes that they tried to get uh, for the period 2001 to 2004 are intentionally omitted from the Clinton Foundation website, but they're available in Massachusetts and California and other states. I have them. And all, every single one of those purported audits says, um, in an in, not in bold, but it says, these accounting statements are not compliant with the principles required inside the United States of America. Doesn't get any, you know, open more open and shut than that. We're circulating during this important period where they were building the campus in Little Rock. The accounting statements do not comply with the United States accounting principles, and, and and accounting statements are just like building a building. You know, if you start with a foundation in a place where you need a foundation, and you have a foundation that doesn't work. You can't put a first floor on top of that foundation. You can't put a second floor, a third floor, etc. So if your books and records are non-compliant from October 23, 1997 through December 31, 2004, unless you can change them, which I submit the Clinton Foundation can't, unless you can change them, no subsequent set of records is true and correct and compliant. 
So this thing has never had a valid audit. They continue to raise money. They have never had truly independent trustees. And another chapter, which really gets my blood boiling, is that this is supposed to be an independent entity. It's not supposed to be a subsidiary of the Clinton family in Chappaqua in Washington, D.C. No, it's what's called a public charity. So it must have an independent board. That means it has to have, can't just all be Clinton loyalists, Terry McAuliffe and all of the people who've helped the Clintons over the years. No, you have to have truly independent trustees who understand their duties of loyalty, care, and obedience. You know, care meaning they take the requisite time to study. Obedience meaning they obey all laws, not just Arkansas law and Pennsylvania and New York, all law everywhere around the world. And finally, their duty of loyalty. That means in the event of a conflict between Bill Clinton making $17.6 million as the honorary chancellor of a supposed joint venture partner of the Clinton Foundation and not disclosing that still to this day, you know, you can't do that. And he's done it. They pocketed $17.6 million. They pocketed all told over $150 million in speaking fees, much of which has come from people tied to this charity one way or another. None of those connections have been adequately traced. You can't run a public charity for the benefit of private people. And you certainly can't do it for the people who, in the dead of night, adjust the bylaws of the foundation, which they did in November, I think it's from memory, November 2nd, 2013. They changed the bylaws to entrench the Clinton family, Bill, Hillary, and Chelsea, as having total control over the Clinton Foundation, gutting its status as a public charity. And they kept that situation in place, even as Hillary announced on April 13th, 2015, that she was going to seek the highest office of the land. Even then, Hillary Clinton remained illegally a Class A director of this Clinton Foundation without telling her donors, without telling the public, without telling the regulators, and stayed in that position until September 10th, 2015. Now, I bring all that up to say, these are magic dates. When you look into this FBI vault file, you will see that they were trying to game the entire system. They were gaming the charity. They were gaming the charity's affiliates. They were jeopardizing and are jeopardizing all of the donors, the private foundation donors, the government donors to this thing. I think they all owe the American people a gigantic tax bill. And I'm going to work my hardest to make sure that we get this money back to reduce our debt. Um, They were gaming that. They were gaming the Bernie Sanders wing of the Democratic Party and moderate Democrats. And they even tried to rig, I would would argue, the general election as well. And to to lead this crazy resist movement on the basis of a false narrative that I would argue is gaslighting, gaslighting, accusing um, the Trump people of uh, colluding with the Russians when, in fact, it's the Clintons who, going way back, in Bill's case, all the way back to even before he was president, and then while he was president, taking money from Mark Rich, of all people, who looted, participated in looting the former Soviet Union. You were um, the one that pointed that, if I remember correctly, I didn't know about the, the, the Rich connection, and I, I think you, you were the one that educated me on that, and I think the American public, if, I, if I'm correct... Yeah, I mean, what, what this, the Clintons are, you know, certainly I'll give them one thing. They, they have no moral compass, but they're very clever. And I, I don't know how clever Hillary is. I think Bill, Bill is a twisted genius. Um, and what they figured out is that if you're going to be the biggest economy in the world, really smart to set, and you can game your own country, why not create unregulated globalism, an unregulated global market 
where kingpin politicians from dynastic families can swan around the world taking a cut of international deals that are funded by the UN, funded by the World Bank, funded by the IFC, funded by the American taxpayer, funded by taxpayers in big countries. And because these projects are so complicated, and because there's 193 countries that are 193 or 4 in the UN, there's always going to be a way to slide the structure, especially given now technology and the Internet, uh, away from the regulators who don't have the resources, may not have the inclination, and may even be corrupt themselves. They were smart enough to figure that out. And I think part of the Clintons, you know, look at this life perhaps as just one big game. You know, we're all going to be gone in the end. Who cares? You know, what matters? Who cares what actually happened? Because we're all going to leave the planet eventually. Let's just have some fun. Nobody will ever catch us. Catch me if you can. That's their mentality. Whereas the founders in the United States of America, and I think the great men chiefly who founded this country, but the women who worked with them to raise and make the country a great place, raise their children and make the country a great place. These people of very different faiths uh, across the Christian spectrum and, the, and Jews and other some other religions, all of these people who came to our country in the very beginning understood that man needs to uh, see life in perspective. We need to understand that we will be judged in time. And we cannot cede power to people who have no sense of right or wrong, which is what I think the Clintons manifestly demonstrated. They don't, they don't care about right and wrong. I mean, who would, who would stand between the desperately poor people in Haiti and say that we need to raise, as some estimate, as much as $13 billion and then allow that money to be diverted? Who would do that? Who, who would then slap brochure after brochure, get these fancy pictures of this waif-like thin girls and boys with flies buzzing around their eyes and tears in their eyes and, and you know put these planted pictures out there and then the grandmothers and grandfathers send whatever it is 20 bucks a month or more who would do that and and not make sure that the money actually helped the people of Haiti the answer the Clintons man I'll tell you something you just I, uh, the outline was perfect the foundation was uh, the foundational material you just gave was perfect anyone if you're hearing this for the first time which I, I can't hardly believe um, consider yourself enlightened and if you're hearing this again consider yourself uh, more informed and uh, you know reinformed about this Especially with what they did, with, with what they did in Haiti and, um, the information that Peter Schweitzer in his book, Clinton Cash, had documented. But of course, you on your own merits and in your own investigation documenting the entirety of, of this, this fraud. Uh, it's amazing. But, but you're saying this is all hubris. This is all intentional. This is a big middle finger to everyone in America and everyone else. I mean, this is, none of this is incompetence. This is deliberate, planned, orchestrated, and cold. Well, yeah, I'm, I say I'm not involved in, in security because I'm not, but when I was involved in, in buying and selling companies as an advisor, we had a very strict rule at our firm that you couldn't, on all many travels that I went on, I couldn't ever read um, business papers on a jet or, you know, whatever. I had to, I could only read whatever, fiction or something like that. So I developed an interest in spy novels, and I collect first edition spy novels, but... Um, so I've read a lot of those, and you'll you'll hear tales of you know the, the the arsonist wants to go and watch the firemen try to put out the fire. Yep. 
And I think you see that behavior in these books that the Clintons have put out. One that really stands out to me is Bill's, the book that was written in 2000, published in 2007 called Giving, is a textbook admission of fraud when you look at it. And Bill starts the book, or whoever wrote it, starts the book recounting the tale there's some dinner and it's got a funny name. It's not meant to be the, the racial epithet. It's, it's called the something, I think, raccoon or coon dinner in southeastern Arkansas to, to help raise money for this uh, small poor town's football team. And Bill talks about this with, rest, you know, joking about it in the book. And he explains that, you know, every year if you want to be politically consequential in Arkansas, you got to go to this dinner and you, 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 a bunch, a large number of people sign up to pay whatever you have to pay to, to eat this dinner. And what's it actually made out of? It's made out of roadkill. <laughs> and what they do is they take roadkill and they put hot sauce on it and Bill makes a joke about it. And nobody keeps track of the money. I think Bill saw that. He grew up, you know, not in Las Vegas, which is a big corrupt town, but in the equivalent of Arkansas's Las Vegas. You know, I forget the name of the town. Hot Springs, I think it was, near there. And he grew up in this, in this crazy environment with, you know, a, a difficult stepfather. He had to, you know, the, according to his, his book, which actually is his biography, My Life in yep. Parts is quite interesting. Um, you know, he grew up in that environment and his story could have been a great story. But he, he like it, you know, a Greek tragic figure. He has these fatal flaws. He can't get out of his own way. And I think nobody caught him. Nobody's ever taken Bill Clinton and walked into him with a big two by four or whatever you need to use and say, listen, Bill, you know, this ain't what you do. And you've got to atone for your sins. He just gets away with, I don't care about money. Don't care. <laughs> <You know. laughs> and, and that's not true. I think, you know, Bill, Bill is very smart, I can tell. I mean, from what I read and when you hear him talk and react, he's very, very smart. He has no moral compass. No. Well, he's a hell of a lot smarter than, than, than I am. Uh, you know, obviously he's getting a half a million a speech at, in, you know, in Moscow. Um, so, so he's got to have some, some smarts there. Uh, or perhaps that's not, uh, Necessarily true, uh, Mr. Ortel is our guest. Charles Ortel, I, I'm sure everyone knows Charles Ortel, our guest. Follow him on Twitter at Charles Ortel. Also, his website CharlesOrtel.com, and catch him every Sunday. You're on every Sunday, right? With um, Crowdsource of the Truth. Well, what we do is uh, just to mix it up a little. We we call the show Sunday with Charles because I saw an opportunity. I, I don't want to do a daily show, but I think there's a market for a good Sunday show, yep. not a canned one, that's very, you know, fresh. And the major league talent on the big name Sunday shows, they don't really want to work uh, the last minute on Sunday. So a lot of what you see on those shows, in my opinion, is very stale. So we're going to do a regular Sunday show, but then travel intervenes and holidays intervenes. And so our forthcoming show actually will be on Monday at 3 p.m., Okay. But we're still going to call it Sunday with Charles, just to be eccentric. Well, we're going to be tuned in. I, I, I love, I love your presentation and your, in your style. And that's not false flattery or blowing smoke up your butt. I'm just telling you, I think you've, you've told me more, uh, educated us here in the office and the studio more about, uh, these matters than anyone else that we've tuned into. I'm going to go back to something you said here because we only have you to the top of the hour. Um, the FBI vault dumps. You mentioned something, and it kind of went over my head, I think. Are you telling me that 
the FBI had created a case against Huma Abedin and Hillary, and nothing was done. Huh? That's exactly what I'm. That's exactly what I'm telling. You. So, so this is this is a case. You see, I think the context that I see here, you know, um, is that that I believe knowing the Clintons just from the public record, these are the kings and queens of opposition research. Hillary Clinton did not expect to do the belly flop that she did in 2008, losing to upstart Barack Obama. You can be very, very sure they had a lot of opposition research on everybody, including Barack Obama. And she reluctantly, you know, I, I talked about it in the most recent show, but in June of 2008, in, there's a lot of reporting that shows there was a, a meeting at the House, Diane Feinstein's house, between Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. And I think some sort of dirty deal was cut then. You know, it was obvious that, uh, you know, a Dem- to me anyway, that, and I'm not a political expert, but it was obvious to me that a Democrat was going to win in 2008. That Democrat was going to be Barack Obama. And though it must have hurt like heck for Hillary to have to give in and disappoint her many donors who probably were out hundreds of millions of dollars, some sort of a deal was cut, I would argue, in June of 2008, not during that walk in the woods in November of 2008 in the, in the fable that has been told by many other people. And I think the deal was something like, look, you know, you're up against Republicans. You're going to need money. We have a way of getting a lot of money for the general election. Don't ask how we do it. It's going to be for your benefit. And our quid pro quo is Hillary's going to be Secretary of State. Bill's going to keep running the Clinton Foundation. You're not going to say boo about what we do. You're going to let us do it for four years. We'll have to get reelected. Then I'm going to ride off into the sunset, and you're going to let us do what we do with the Clinton Foundation. You're going to set up your own foundation, and then I'm going to be succeeding you in 2000, January 22, 2017. That's the deal. And if you don't play with us, it's not clear you're going to win. Now, something like that happened, is in my view. And that would explain, I mean, what I think about, for example, the New Yorker magazine cover that had Barack and Michelle. That was, I think, the handiwork of Sid, Sid Blumenthal, Sid Vicious Blumenthal, you know, if I'm Michelle Obama, if I'm supporters uh, of Barack Obama, I see that New Yorker magazine cover with Michelle and Barack with, you know, machine guns in the White House and Arabic clothes, you know, Arab terrorist clothes, I'm most unhappy. That's the kind of thing, you know, call me stupid, call me simple. You do that to me, and I can never, never smoke a peace pipe with you under no circumstance. That's outrageous. So, it strikes me that the Clintons must have had something, must have been mutually assured destruction that led to this false memorandum of understanding. Lawyers in your audience will confirm what I'm telling you now that it is not an enforceable document. Bill's name was not a party to it. He was not a trustee or a named executive of the Clinton Foundation by December 12, 2008. So that document is Swiss cheese, unenforceable. Uh, they duped the Senate. They got Hillary across the line. And by Barack and, and whoever else participating in it, they then became part of the fraud, which explains why no one ever cared so very much about why 100% of Hillary's business was transacted on secured servers. I mean, I would have thought, if I, you know, if I, God forbid I ran to be President of the United States and somehow won, and somebody opposed me the way the Clintons opposed Barack Obama, you know, I would, uh, the first thing I would do on January 20th uh, afternoon I would have had my teams uh, standing by the IRS, standing by wherever else to find out what really was the case. 
at the Clinton Foundation, I would say, give me a report of what, what the heck's been going on here. And then, you know, seven days later, while Hillary and Bill were sleeping, wherever they may have been sleeping, at 4 o'clock in the morning, I'd bust down the door of their houses. If, if I, you know, knew then what I know now, that, that foundation was basically bankrupt, non-existent, was legally, you know, defunct. Um, and somehow Barack and his team put up with all this. And so the only way I can understand that happening is if the Clintons had something on the Obamas that terrified them. And I don't know what that might have been. Good, good points. Uh, one last question before I kick you to Joe, because he, he's got a, a couple of questions. Um, uh, one last question about about uh, about the relationship between Obama and Hillary as you understand it today. Uh, I've been hearing through my contacts that you know there ain't no love lost between those two, uh, the Clintons and the Obamas. Is that what, you, what your understanding, or do you have something different? No, I think that's absolutely the case. I mean, I don't know. I, I think, you know, giving some free advice to the Democratic Party, which is worth about as much as they will pay for it, um, is that I think you look at this Democratic brand, and I'm not interested in politics, I'm not being coy, but my family has been involved in politics early on. I have an ancestor who was the mayor of Springfield, Illinois, when the next door, across the street neighbor of Abraham Lincoln from 1846 to 1849, and another ancestor who ran and lost uh, to be uh, a congressperson in Montana, uh, all as Democrats. You look at the Democratic Party, and it is it is the the party of extinction. It's going down uh, a direction that didn't work, hasn't worked under Obama, didn't work in 2016. And on the other hand, if you take the Clintons out of the equation, the strongest potential candidate for the Democrats, and I'm not advocating this person, might be Michelle. Um, and I can imagine that the people around the Democratic brand who, you know, contribute and then receive returns, perhaps, from government contracts, well, look at this and say, you know, there is going to be an argument by 2020, perhaps, that, you know, let's go back to the good old days of Barack Obama, two for the price of one, et cetera. So I bring all that up to say it would be in the interest, I think, of the Obamas, particularly now, as we see this FBI vault file, when you get a chance to go through it, you'll see what I'm talking about. It when the team Obama looks at that, you know they might well have decided, you know, figuratively, we got to put a knife in the Clintons. And I would mention that, you know, actually during 2016, what was really gratifying and interesting to me, not just to come on shows like yours, is that I had more airtime, and I get more airtime actually on progressive stations. Uh, and progressive uh, podcast, but because people across this spectrum are outraged how far, how low the Clintons have gone, abusing charity land, abusing a charity named after themselves, you know, that has to file public records in states and at the IRS around the world, all, all of which are wrong. It's not like you know, it's not like they're going to be able to walk all this stuff back and say we didn't know. I mean, we are not lawyers. Oh yeah, we are lawyers. I mean, we're not educated. Oh, my daughter has a PhD. I mean, we don't have any experience with, oh, I was a governor, I was a senator, I was a president. I mean, they can't say any of that. You know, and when people finally go into these details, they, they have to come away being as shocked and horrified as I am. And I think what will happen here is there actually may be bipartisan agreement that it makes a lot of sense to use the Clinton Foundation as an example of how not to run a charity. And then, now that we have a close on tax reform, some good news, we can 
used this fraud and the exposure of this fraud as a means under existing laws to go after the big donors, Gates Foundation, for example. I mean, Donald Trump, if he wanted to close a budget deficit quick-like in 2018, pay a visit to Bill Gates and say, listen, Bill, you know, you can't say you did this by accident. You made over, your charity gave over 100 different donations, over $150 million to the Clinton Foundation, various guises, over time. And the penalty for repeatedly falsely characterizing your donation as being to a public charity when it was to a fraud is I can say, all right, Bill, thank you for this pile of money in your foundation. Please stand by as the FBI liquidates your portfolios, pays off your bills, and sends all of that money into the Treasury as penalty, taxes, etc., on the entire kit and caboodle of the Gates Foundation, which I think is more than four, it's around 40 or $50 billion. Send that in to pay down the debt. Move on to the Rockefeller Foundation. Move on to the other big foundations. And then go to these governments around the world, Australia, France, the UK, Sweden, you name it, Netherlands, and say, guys, what were you thinking? You know, how could you send all this money towards the Clinton Foundation and not care that it didn't end up there? You know, what were you doing? Let's see. Let's see how many friends uh, Bill and Hillary have after that happens. But (laughs) what a remedy. What a remedy in a number of different ways. Um, we only have a couple of minutes left with you. I can't believe how fast this hour has gone. Uh, Joe, you, you were talking. Yeah, Charles, could, go ahead. Just, just a couple of things, uh, real quick. Um, one, do you think that we will see any type of, uh, justice brought to, to Hillary Clinton, to any of the people involved in the FBI, the DOJ, uh, all the way stemming back to the Clinton, Clinton emails for lawyers? Do you think we'll see anybody held accountable for the crimes and scandals that we've seen in the last three I did say I'm not involved in politics, so maybe I'm naive. But I think, actually, that this is so big, the largest unprosecuted criminal conspiracy in history, far bigger than Madoff, for example, forgetting Corinne Brennan. It's gigantic, you know. And you have a president who's a disruptor. Excuse me. You have midterm elections coming up. You have people who are hurting. You have, you're look, we're looking as Americans for an issue where people on the right and the left can agree. This is a hopeful issue. I mean, you, you could make the case, I'm not saying I'm going to make this case yet, that some of the people who built up these foundations are monopolists. You know, Bill Gates, is he a monopolist? Mike Bloomberg, is he a monopolist? Should they have been able to get these gigantic things built in such a short period of time? You know, is it possible that there should be some retribution here? Going after not the one percent, but you're talking here about the point oh 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 one percent, who have you know sat over top these charities that made you know made themselves look better. Mike Bloomberg has done some very good things. I'm not attacking him now, but administering his own charity, working with a, a, the Clinton Climate Initiative, which is a complete fraud, making a big deal of that with the C40 Large Cities Initiative, another fraud. Um, that's a big mistake. And, you know, we could all work together now and say, you know what, let's make sure the money that's raised for charity goes to charity. And while we're at it, you know, I went to some Ivy League schools. Let's go after them. You know, the Harvards, the Yales, the Columbias that have allowed their, the Cornells that have allowed their names to be used as cover for these fraudsters. Well, they have exposure too, technically. You know, Donald Trump and the IRS could go to Yale and Harvard and Columbia and say, listen, you know, you, you weren't operating your universities to uh, shed light on, and solve real problem, problem, problems, you are operating the universities, it seems, to create he- hedge funds and private equity funds and, and richer professors and 
in which the Clintons had curry favor with these politicians. That's not what charity's all about. And you're the great moralists on these Ivy League campuses, telling, lecturing the rest of us about what's right and what's wrong. Why is it right for you overpaid people to send money to enable this gigantic international criminal conspiracy that really does reflect badly on a great country? Man, I'll tell you something. This... This is exactly what we needed to hear. Uh, so, so essentially there is hope. There's hope for justice, however it might appear in, at the end of the day. Um, we've In the closing seconds, I just want to say thank you so much. Charles, would you agree to come back with us in the future Anytime. and just give us an update? Oh, all right. You've been so gracious with your time. We really want to thank you for your appearance tonight, uh, taking away from your family time on a Friday night. Thank you. Um, and, and you're welcome back, and we'll have you back, and we'll be following your work. We'll be promoting everything that you find. God bless you. Stay safe, too. This is some uh, some stuff. All right. Charles, thank you so very much. Awesome interview. Yeah, indeed. Uh, folks, that was Charles Ortel, charlesortel.com, and, and he is uh, one of the, the premier researchers and investigators, especially about the uh, about the uh, charity fraud and uh, the, the the Clinton Foundation. We'll be right back. Stay right where we're at. This edition of the Hagman Report, you know, just 10 days before Christmas, uh, 17 days before the new year. Can you believe 2018 already? What happened to 2017? What happened to 2016? What happened to the 70s? That's what I want to know. Uh, all right. Uh, anyway, you know. And, and, and that's right. If you remember the 70s, you really didn't live them. So, all right. But 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 you know how it is. Seriously, time is really going in 2018, and, and uh, we're looking at events. What a what a news packed year 2017 was, and equally equally news packed, if not more. Uh, we've got a great guest coming on with us, Dr. Lori Handrahan, uh, a book, Epidemic, America's Trade in Child Rape, a very serious subject, something that's extremely topical for today. And uh, she is just a, a, a gracious woman, and she knows, I, not just gracious, but, man, I'll tell you, you talk about some information, just buckle in because... Get ready. Before we get to our guest, I want to tell you about Omaha Steaks. Do you know I sent out a number of packages to some very special people uh, using OmahaSteaks.com. I did not have to go out to the mall. I didn't have to do anything. I just click up a mouse. And if you're struggling to find the perfect gift for someone who has it all, I want to just tell you about Omaha Steaks, where for only forty nine ninety nine, you can get my family gift pack when you go to omahasteaks.com and enter our code HH in the search bar. It's 75% off. That's 75% savings. And while you're there, peruse the over 500 gourmet gift ideas and take a look at the choices that you've got to purchase seafood, poultry, pork, veal, lamb, and, and consider as well the convenience and quick shopping 
for anyone that's on your list. And they've got online recipes of wine pairings and more. But right now, Omaha Steaks is giving an exclusive savings just for you, the listeners of the Hagman Report. Listen to everything that you'll get for under $50. I, I, I've got to name them because I can't believe it. It's that great. You get two filet mignons, two top sirloins, two boneless pork chops, four boneless chicken breasts, and boy, are they good. They're just, ugh. Oh. Uh, it, it, four kielbasa sausages, four steak burgers, four potatoes au gratin, four caramel apple tartlets, which are just, I don't know what's in those, but man, I'll tell you, when we cook those up, everyone just, that dessert, doesn't, there's no dessert left. There's not nary a crumb, shall we say. Uh, plus, one Omaha Steak seasoning packet, and if you order now, you'll get four additional kielbasa sausages free. All of that, all of that for Forty nine ninety nine. All you have to do, go to omahasteaks.com, enter our code HH in the search bar to get the 75% savings. It's a gift guaranteed to be a hit. And I, uh, please take advantage of it. And make sure you type in HH in the search bar. Uh, you're, you'll, you'll thank me. You'll thank me. You'll, you'll be a hero. So anyway, now a very serious topic about America's trade in child rape. You know, we've been hearing so many headlines about the perversity that's taking place in an, in our country, around our country, outside of our country. It's not a pleasant topic, but when we do discuss this, we need to discuss this with experts. Our next guest, Joe, is an expert, uh, Lori Handrahan. She's got a PhD, Dr. Lori Handrahan. And, uh, yeah, she's the author of a book, Epidemic, America's Trade in Child Rape. You can go to her website, lauriehandrahan.com, and the book is also available on Amazon. And Dr. Lori has over 20 years of humanitarian and human, human rights work in Central Asia, Africa, and the Balkans. Her focus is gender-based violence and conflict, post-conflict environments, UN reform, and ending child sex abuse. She completed her PhD work at London School of Economics, her work is published widely from academic journals to the New York Times, Christian Science Monitor, Huffington Post, the Washington Times, Forbes, and many others. She's also been a guest on, on just about every mainstream. Yeah, network. she's very well known. And I, I didn't mean to, to, yeah, I do that all the time. I interrupt my son and, and I get emails about it and saying, you know, why don't you just shut up, Doug? Um, and thank you for pointing that out. But I, I, I do want to mention this. When uh, this book, uh, Epidemic America's Tra- Trade and Child Rape, when, when John gave this to me and, and I started reading this, uh, uh, you know, look, I gotta, I, I look at things a lot differently now. This really was an educational read for me. And it's, there's not a wasted word here. And, uh, the author, of course, Dr. Hanran gets into child pornography and the military, lawyers, judges, uh, things that, you know, even academia, the, uh, oh, it's just, it's just an incredible read, a resource for information. So I'm going to shut up now. Go ahead, Joe. Not that I interrupted you, but, but this, grab this if you're interested in this topic. And uh, you should be because it, it's of national interest. Dr. Laurie Handeran, welcome to the Hagman Report. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Just want to ask you this this question: uh, what what got you started down this road? Well, it uh, was a personal situation for me um, involving my daughter, uh, which a lot of people know about because it is I've, I've posted a, a lot about that on my Medium account. So, if anybody's interested, if they 
Google my name and they go to my Medium account, they can see that. But um, yeah, I uh, I didn't understand what was happening and how this was allowed to happen in America, which is supposed to be governed by democracy and a rule of law. And so I, I did what I'm trained to do. I'm a trained social scientist, so I research, right? And social scientists research large-scale societal patterns of behavior. So I started researching. Um, and we're very much like, like private investigators. I now have become really good friends with uh, a lot of law enforcement and private investigators. And it's a very similar type of investigative strategy, except we, we would put together lots of data and then look at a pattern of behavior. So that was the beginning, um, you know, trying to understand how my, my daughter could be trafficked in family court in the state of Maine, how she she could be confirmed for rape at the age of two and then be put in the sole custody of her father. So that was the beginning of this research, and um, it was a very painful learning curve, and it was very painful uh, research to do. And at every point, and still, I keep thinking, I really understand the scope of this crime, and I can't be shocked anymore. And <laughs> I, I'm always shocked. I mean, it's a uh, by the way, when you get to, when you get to that point where nothing shocks you anymore, that's a bad place to be. Yeah. You know, it really is. But but I understand that, and and. Um, okay, so this was born out of personal experience. Yes. Yeah, that's tough. Wow. Okay. And and you're, if you don't mind me probing this, I and to the extent you're comfortable, when when you say when when I say born out of personal experience, this relates to your daughter. Your daughter was victimized, right? Yes, yeah, she's she was confirmed for rape uh, by her father at the age of two. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, an organization in Maine called the Spurwink Clinic and um, Dr. Larry Ritchie is very well known in Maine and and all over New England and nationally he's recognized as one of the top doctors, medical doctors on this on this issue of child sex abuse and the entire team confirmed that my daughter had been sexually abused by her father at the age of two and there's a forensic report there was a forensic interview done with my daughter were two medical reports her vagina was shredded. Uh, she had a urinary tract infection. Had to go on antibiotics. And um, I, yeah, I'm I, so sorry. I, you know, I, I, I'm so sorry. And, and you know, uh, Dr. Henry, and I, I apologize. I think we, we might be having some audio problems. If you can, if I don't, if pardon me, if I ask you to speak up a little bit more. Sure. Because uh, I'm, I'm having some issues with with my with my uh, the uh, equipment here apparently. Um, Okay, so this led you uh, on a path, uh, a certain path for, uh, well, to to where you're at now. That this this line. By the way, we we are private investigators by profession, so consider us friends, allies, and you know whatever you need from us. Um, go ahead, Joe. I, I'll, I'll kick it over to you because I know that you you had some. Well, Doctor Larry, let's questions. let's start with um, the numbers. Uh, you know how how. Uh, I guess we have to break it into a couple of different categories. You have uh, the the child rape and trafficking. Well, let's talk about the the numbers as far as uh, how many people are caught versus how many successful prosecutions we have uh, yeah. with those people who are caught. And I I know from the table of contents in your book you have some of these numbers worked out. 
Right. Yeah, okay, so that's a really great question. I mean, we don't know. That That's kind of the whole point of the book is that it really sets out a research agenda that I would like to be able to fulfill or help other agencies or people fulfill. Nobody has the data. DOJ hasn't been collecting the data, although they're supposed to. Uh, the U.S. Sentencing Commission hasn't updated uh, federal child pornography convictions since 2012. Um, so that's the most recent data that we have. And then what I did, I have a whole chapter on data where I try to explain the data that is known, and there's a lot of small pieces of data that, w that are out there, but nobody's pulled those pieces together. And I've tried to do that, but it's not a really rigorous analysis because we haven't been able to pull all the data together. So one of the things that I, I thought was very important with the book is when people read it, and it is shocking and it's horrifying and it's very devastating to read, I didn't want to leave people there. I wanted people to feel like, but I can do something, but I can take action. So we have action items all over the book. and. This is what I was trained to do. My, my PhD is applied social science. So we were always being pushed at London School of Economics. Well, so what? I mean, so you've got this data, and how are you going to use that to make the world a better place? So that's, you know, always been part of everything I do. And um, on the data bit, I talked to the public affairs uh, woman at uh, the U.S. Sentencing Commission, a really, really nice woman named Liz. So you'll see her Twitter account is in the little action item box and her phone number, her email. And she said, just tell everybody, if you want us to update the federal child pornography convictions and all of the data of how many were arrested versus how many were prosecuted, how many were convicted, what kind of sentences are we seeing, what are the demographics of those, just ask people to contact me because we respond to the general public. So that's an easy action item, you can just go on Twitter and say, hey, U.S. Sentencing Commission, please update your child pornography arrest and conviction data. And, and you'll actually be doing something really important, and you can do it right from your couch, you know, your kitchen table. Uh, it won't put you at risk or in harm's way, but it would really have a big impact. Um, she's also said, you know, of course, if a senator or a congressman asks, or a congresswoman asks us to do this, we can too. So. I was very lucky. I was up on the Hill last week and this week, and I met with two amazing congressmen. One is Pete, Pete Olson, a Republican from Texas, and the other is Bobby Rush, from a Democrat from Illinois. Offices are right next to each other. Both of them care deeply about this issue. And um, I drafted a letter for their staff to send to the U.S. Sentencing Commission. They said, we're on it. We're going to ask them to update this data. We're going to have hearings about this. Um, so. You know, I'm working hard now to try to implement some of the policy items that need to change in, in order for us to understand this war against our children that most people have no idea is even happening. No, you're right, and a lot of people don't want to know. And that's what I want to ask you next is, why do you think, is it because of how uh, graphic and and the emotional uh, response that it can gauge talking about this? Why are, Why do so many Americans either ignore these, turn a blind eye to, to this kind of information, or not want to hear about it? I think that's another great question. I was just getting my eyes examined for my annual eye examination at my eye doctors here in D.C., and I had uh, they know that I write a lot, and uh, they asked if I published any books recently, and I said yes, and uh, one of my friends made these little cards that we're giving out to everybody, and so I handed one to, to the guys at my eye doctors. And they immediately said, oh, God, no, I don't want to hear about that. That's awful. Don't tell me about it. How could you research that? 
and what I and people always have this kind of visceral reaction of cringing and you know just making this with their whole body freezing up um, sort of response and I say that's what pedophiles count on so pedophiles count on you saying don't tell me I don't want to know they count on your silence so congratulations because you're helping the pedophiles by reacting that way and they all stopped and they said well what could we do about it so I said well I'm glad you asked because we've got a lot of action items in the book and you know I'll give you guys a copy of the book for free because you guys have been my eye doctors for a long time so you know it's important for people to know that they can't turn away I don't think it's only the crime of child rape and pedophilia that people turn away from. In my career, I've always worked as a humanitarian. I've just come back from South Sudan. I've worked in human rights and humanitarian field for 20 years. Every Holocaust people have turned away from. Every Holocaust people have disbelieved it can't really be happening. People can't be being tortured. We, we, we humanity, can't be treating other human beings this way. And, of course, over and over and over again we do. And if you read the research on crimes against humanity and Holocaust, it's because good people do nothing, right? Good people turn away. You know, you know. If I can just publicly say thank you, because we are obviously a um, well. I'm not sure how much John told you, but but we are a uh, uh, a news platform. But we look at things through a Christian. We have a Christian bias, obviously, a Christian worldview, and I am. Absolutely, lack of, uh, or the people who, who just refuse to even address this issue, or when they do, it's, well, it, it, it's as you described. So, you know, it, it would be like, um, it would be like a, a homicide investor going to the scene of a homicide, a messy homicide. No one likes to do that, but it's got to be done. Um, of, of course, you know, you or anyone responding to a, a case of child, whether it's pedophilia or whether it's uh, human sex trafficking, it's got to be done. And just because you don't like it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And I'm sorry, I, I don't mean to get on a soapbox here, but I, I'm just absolutely stunned by the level of inaction and by the you know, turning of the heads. I don't want to talk about this or or it, equally bad, and then I'm going to shut up because I, I'm sorry, but this just gets my goat. Um, when uh, when you've got publications, and I'm not going to name, I won't even name the, the, the dirtbag publications again. I'm sorry, this is, I'm taking this personal uh, because it is personal. Uh, when you talk about uh, the uh, uh, trafficking in children and you show a picture of of a little boy in, you know in a cage that was taken um well uh, without getting into details and they say well that that boy could be playing around you know could be playing a game of hide and seek and they they mock the very thought that this stuff is going on to me that's there's a special place in hell for people like that but anyway i digress but so thank you I just accept this as my is my thanks, and I'll quit my personal rant now. But, okay. No, I mean, I, I, I don't want to see them get a place in hell. I want to see them get that hellish place here on, on Earth. I mean, Better you know, stated. there should be, yes. should be very long prison sentences followed by lifetime on the sex offender registry, lifetime supervised release, and mandatory chemical castration. You know, and, and these guys are getting off. I mean, you mentioned the dog cage thing. That's very common to keep children in cages. So when I 
when I look at the cases, I, I, it took a lot of effort in the book because there's been a lot of pushback. These pedophiles want to keep committing their crime with impunity. So anybody who does try to speak out against this gets labeled conspiracy theory. It's fringe. It's crazy people. This isn't true sort of thing. And so what I, what my contribution, I, I hope is, is my credibility as a PhD, as a social scientist, and really documenting the crime. So when I see an arrest in mainstream media, I then get the court documents if I can. I can't always get them. I talk to the lead investigator and prosecutor if I can, or the court clerk. But the court documents themselves, the criminal complaints, really do detail exactly what's going on. So you, you mentioned dog. One of the early cases that I looked at that just shocked me was a dean at the University of, of Virginia named Michael Morris. And that's profiled in the book. It's also up on my Medium uh, site about professors and staff who've been arrested for trading and child rape. So his arrest was widely reported by mainstream media, but not one journalist got his criminal complaint from the Department of Justice and reported on what the man was actually doing. And when you do, it changes the entire crime. So in that case, DOJ had spent a lot of work, the very good prosecutors, I think it was in Eastern District of Virginia, um, had worked very hard. And they told me they were really grateful that somebody cared about getting the criminal complaint. So when you got it, you found out that the dean at the University of Virginia, Michael Morris, one of the pictures that he was trading in, or videos, included children in dog cages. And this, this is what he was using to... to sexually stimulate and give himself pleasure. You know, another was a girl being forced to perform oral sex, a six-year-old girl with a knife at her throat. You know, he was pretending to be a 12 or 13-year-old girl or boy setting up fake Facebook pages to get other 12 and 13 and 10-year-old children to masturbate for him and, and produce child pornography. This is a dean at the University of Virginia. And when he was sentenced, all these people came forward and said, but he's such a wonderful man, and he plays great tennis, and he's a father of teenage children, and please don't send him to jail. No, he is not a wonderful man. He is committing the most horrific crime. He is trafficking children on campus on University of Virginia computers. You know, how could this be a wonderful man? It's not. But you've got to read the criminal complaints. And that's, if you started to read the criminal complaints, you'd see that the children in cages is, is very common. Yeah, exactly. And, and thank you for bringing that out. It, it just, it just, yeah. It, it, and, and the component, the, the criminal complaint, and I know exactly what you're saying because, um, well, I, I'll just, I, I don't need to add anything to that. That's, stands on its own. An interesting component of, the, of this, of child pornography and child trafficking <clears throat> that you take detail in your book, the whole chapter on is, uh, the racial dynamics of the mm-hmm. offenders. And I want to get into that in just a little bit, but first I want to ask you about um, Chapter 5 of your book, The National Security Problem. You say that child pornography is a national security issue. Do you want to explain that a little bit? Yeah, sure. Thank you. That's another good question. I mean, that's where I started when I was uh, still a professor at American University. I was really only looking at it as a national security problem because I was in the School of International Service, and this is my background in international work, international relations, uh, humanitarian response. And I was looking at how many government employees were doing this uh, with impunity. And so my that's the heart of the book. It's the longest chapter is why it's a national security issue. One example that I often use is David O'Brien. And he's profiled in the book, and it's also up on my Medium site. 
David O'Brien was the top nuclear scientist in America. He was at uh, Patrick Air Force Base in Florida, and he is responsible. He's leading the team that's responsible for monitoring any kind of nuclear activity that is happening around the world that may be threatening our safety. And what is he doing? He was downloading child pornography from Russian organized crime websites onto U.S. Air Force computers at the Nuclear Deterrence Monitoring Center at Patrick Air Force Base. That it, That's just one of hundreds of examples. But if that's not a national security issue, I don't know what is. Well, yeah, uh, you can't, yeah, I don't think you can get any bigger of an example that, well, I suppose you could, but you'd have to try hard. That's amazing. Okay. It's amazing. Right. So again, the local media covered it. It never made national news, to my knowledge, and I think I've, I've looked at every media article that was written on David O'Brien's case. I may have missed one. I'm happy to be corrected. I sent it around. I have some producers, friends at CNN. I have some national journalist friends here in DC. Nobody would cover it. I'm like, guys, this is a serious national security issue. I sent it around to the national security think tank, talking head community here in DC. Nobody thinks. And he's not the only one. There are many, many, many more cases. I have a whole list of military, and that's really outdated. Um, who have been involved in this crime. It's horrific. So then you start, and in the book, I only focus, we had a lot of difficulty trying to figure out how to frame the book because every profession, it's just epidemic, right? So what I decided to do was focus on government employees. And except for private practice attorneys, the entire book just looks at government employees. So public education sector, the, the military, the, the judges and the prosecutors, the, the lawyers, so many government employees are doing this on government computers. And this is an easy fix. Put in a blocking system. Why isn't it required that every single government agency have a blocking system so that you cannot access children being raped on your government computer? Right? This is easy. This, there's been no political will because there's been no recognition how much this is happening because there's been no research on it. So you sort of peel the onion back. Uh, okay. Now, just so I'm clear, because it seems like there could be two separate issues that we're talking about here or you're referencing. And, and again, I, I'm, I, I love your book, the way it kind of gets into the government employees trafficking children on government, on government computers. I mean, it, it's fantastic in terms of its content. Now, um, um, is there more to this? That that was kind of my next question or the, the, the related question. Obviously, we've got a problem with, with this for, how can I put this delicately, um, self-gratification, I suppose, or entertainment purposes. But is there, is the government... Um, I don't, how can I say this or ask this question without sounding like a looney tune? Are we looking at perhaps something embedded within our own government here that, that's maybe something more than what we're... You know, you know where I'm going yeah, with this? Yeah, I, I do. I don't know. I mean, people will say, well, you know, maybe it's all not true. Maybe this is one theory that gets put forward to me quite often. Maybe it's all just fake, you know, Russian uh, intelligence trying to make it look like our government employees are doing this. Well, once again, if you sit down and you read all the criminal complaints that I have read, <laughs> and if you, most people aren't going to do that, so that's why I profile in the book. If you think all of these cases and all of these federal prosecutions are, are all just fake, then I, I don't, 
I don't know how to even respond to that because that's obviously not true. Exactly. You know, that's just ridiculous and ludicrous. What I think is happening, and and this is in every single sector, it's always white men in positions of power over and over and over again. So um, John had said there's a whole chapter on race, and yeah. So this is why I was able to talk to Congressman Pete Olson and Congressman Bobby Rush because there was a hearing uh, two weeks ago up on the Hill, Martha Blackburn, was presiding. They had four experts, including, I think she was a vice president at the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. And Congressman Rush said, is there a racial element to this crime? And it's totally silent. It was an FBI agent, an NGO director, National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, and a law professor. And they don't answer. And I believe he asked twice. I'd have to go back and look at the CNN transcript, but it was just like dead silence. And then finally, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children person who was the expert witness said she'd have to go look it up. And this is the most basic, basic piece of information if you're supposed to be an expert on this crime. What's the perpetrator profile? Right? That's the basic question, right? Shouldn't she be able to answer that? Works for me, yeah. Right, that's it. So you've got these experts, and the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, you know, she's probably making a quarter of a million dollars a year, and she can't answer what's the perpetrator profile. Now, it's very rare... And, and you guys are private investigators, so you correct me if I'm wrong. It's rare to have a crime that is so significantly demographic in its racial component for the perpetrators. So the U.S. Sentencing Commission, and this is why they're updating their data, is very important. As of 2012, 80 to 90 percent every year that they looked at it, and these are only federal, not including state or local, federal convictions. So not just that they were arrested, but they were actually prosecuted and convicted. It was 80 to 90% white men. That's very, very serious. So if we want to stop the crime, we have to understand why it's 80 to 90% white men, right? Okay, that's a natural progression. Go ahead. Yeah. Right. So you need that data in order to create policy profiles that will help us stop the crime. And then, so if you look at the section on military in my national security chapter, I did, there are some good mainstream journalists who have been doing very, very good work on this. And AP is one of them. AP did a year-long investigation about child sex abuse in the military, and they called it a cascade, uh, so a similar word to ep- epidemic. It's just like, what word do you use when it's so overwhelming that you don't have any words for it? So the AP year-long investigation detailed that every time they looked at somebody who'd been convicted, not just arrested, but the guy was actually convicted for child rape, hands-on or trading in child rape, uh, it was always a man in the leadership position in the military. It wasn't the low-level guys. It was the senior guys. So the same thing when I started to look at police officers. It's not, okay, you'll find some entry-level, on-the-beat street police officers, but over and over and over again, it was police chiefs. Yep. You know, I had to make a separate section for police chiefs when I was starting to organize it because I was like, oh, my God. So what if you're a mother like I was? and your daughter's confirmed for rape, and you go to the police like I did with your forensic report, which should be enough for the police to take action, and they say, we're not going to do anything. Well, now that I know how many police chiefs are doing this, I I start to understand how this is possible for for me and my daughter to have been in this situation. So what happens is, if the police chief himself is engaged in the trade of child rape, and somebody comes forward, you've basically just identified yourself as a vulnerable mother or child to, to be caught up into that crime, right? So anyway, it's a, over and over and over again. When you look at professors and staff, 
It's the provosts, it's the deans, it's the presidents, it's the department heads. Over and over, it's the men in leadership, and they're almost exclusively white. So I, I don't know. I'm not a psychologist, and I, I say that very clearly at the beginning of the book because I get asked this question all the time. I don't know what the psychology behind the crime is. What I care about is ending the impunity for the crime. And what I can tell you is the data shows us, based on the convictions at the federal level, that this is white men overwhelmingly perpetrating this crime. Then when you look at other separate little pieces of data, which I mentioned in that chapter on race, there's a coping study which they looked at. The academics were given access to some of the... They have... When cops arrest somebody and they've got 30,000 pictures and videos, they dump it into these national databases which are being built. And mainly they just sit there and nobody's going to try to find the children because the resources aren't there. So you'll get these databases with six million images that nobody's looking at. So in this coping study, the academics in Europe were allowed to look at some of these uh, database uh, videos and images that have been taken during arrests. And it was overwhelmingly white children. And so they're wondering, well, that's sort of interesting. Why? Why is it overwhelmingly white children? Then you look at this most recent Canadian study that was just released at the beginning of this year, in 2017, and the Canadian study says it's a widespread tragedy now that fathers are involved in doing this. Okay, so you've got a couple of different separate pieces of data. You've got overwhelmingly white men being convicted of the crime. You've got the Canadians saying it's overwhelmingly fathers, and then you've got one study that says a lot of the images are of white children. Well, of course, this all makes sense, right? <laughs> If you're a white man and you're a pedophile and you have access to children, your own children, they're going to be white children that you're going to use to produce this, this child right. pornography. So, so that's uh, just a, that answers a question that you asked earlier. That's a good example of three different pieces of data that nobody has connected. And it's a very obvious connection. Uh, exactly. I, I was going to just say that. Uh, how, how is that not connected? Yeah, of course, that that speaks to the perpetrator profile, especially or lack the, thereof. With such a disproportionate number, yeah, it's obviously right. something you have to look at. Yeah, right. So I, I mean, now I'm speculating. I'm, this is not fact based, and I try to be very clear on when I speculate and when I can pr provide precise known data. You know, I, I'm speculating that a lot of the reason that this isn't public is because there's so many white men in positions of power that appear to be involved in this crime. They're in leadership positions where they will not allow this data to come forward, right? Like the presidents of the university, like the heads of uh, police stations, right? Like top FBI guys. So what I often say to people is, look, there are some great cops out there that I have enormous respect for, and you can just tell by all of the arrests that there are a lot of cops out there doing their job. And I can't imagine having to watch these videos and images just reading the criminal complaints it was devastating for me. Um, yeah, but you, you can't you can't unsee that kind of stuff. By the no, way, you know exactly. No, but if you're a pedophile cop, what unit do you want to work for? Oh, good point. You want to you want to be in the Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force. So just here in D.C. It was about I'd have to go back and look at the record. It's up on my Medium site. Uh, a detective in the Northern Virginia Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force. Uh, was arrested in Maryland because I believe that he lived in Maryland, although he worked in Northern Virginia, because we're in this little tri-state area with the district in the middle. You know, you have competing law enforcement. And 
there's a lot of competition, as, as you guys probably both know, in law enforcement. Local cops hate the FBI. The FBI doesn't work well with anybody, as far as I can tell. There's competition between local cops and state cops and sheriffs and PDs. In any case, this guy worked for the Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force in Virginia, and he was, of course he was, he was the volunteer for the um, ice hockey, youth ice hockey team. I mean, it's always, it's super, of course he led the, the Boy Scouts, of course he worked with vulnerable children, of course he volunteered for the Boys and Girls Club. They're going to try to get access to children. So he was molesting uh, children on the away trips, uh, and the children reported it, and the local police came to arrest him. He shot himself uh, during the arrest, so he didn't face justice. Uh, but, you know, of course, of course there are cops who are supposed to be protecting children and prosecuting these crimes, but they're really involved in the crime. That, that's obviously yeah, how. That, that, that's okay. And, and that, to me, it, it makes perfect sense. Um, we've seen this phenomenon, by the way, um, you know, volunteer firemen. Uh, and this is not to not to critique them, but you know they start a fire and they go and put it out, or they watch, or the or the uh, arsonist uh, watches the fire, you know, the fire burn. It's that kind of, uh, in a, in a way, it's a kind of same kind of, in my view, the same kind of uh, perversity, I suppose. But is this what in your book you identify as pedophile magnets? Yeah. So what I say to people, like once I, it took me so long to really understand this because I kept looking at it as one-off things and it would sort of grow from there. And that's how most people see it. They see an arrest in their community of the local Boy Scout leader or the police chief and they're always so shocked because he was the nicest guy and he loved children, right? And he was so powerful in the community and so active. So pedophiles are people that you really like. They're charming. They need to cultivate this personality to commit the crime and access the children. They're not people that you're scared to leave your child with, right? You think, what an amazing man. He just loves children. He's such a great mentor for my six-year-old son, you know, whose father is has gone away, or I'm a single mom with a six-year-old son. They will be around children, and they will be charming around children. So anybody that you see, and more and more women, unfortunately, are now engaged in the crime, but usually when the women are engaged in the crime, the men are asking the women to do it with them or for them, or the women are doing it for money. But if you see men who are overly engaged with young children, so they're giving them presents, they're always taking them for ice cream, that's the Roy Moore thing. You know, he went to the family court, and he's hanging out, and he's watching the divorces, waiting to pick off a vulnerable child. So he allegedly said to that mother, let me take your 14-year-old daughter out so she doesn't have to witness, you know, what's going on between you and your husband. She thinks, what a lovely DA. He cares so much about children. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So there are pedophile magnets. So, like, daycares are pedophile magnets. It's well known that daycares are used as not all daycares, but many daycares are used and even set up as fronts for pedophiles. They go for under fours, and I discussed this. It's not because it's not a crime of attraction. They're not attracted to three-year-old children or two-year-old children. Under force can't be witnesses in court. It's a strategic decision. It's a crime against whoever is vulnerable, right? So if you don't have a witness in court, you don't have a crime, which means you have impunity, which is what pedophiles are always seeking. They go after disabled children in huge numbers. And that, you know, the way that I discovered that was really, I think, the research I did on special education teachers was the one that really 
really devastated me. And after I had done that, I, I stopped for months and I, I couldn't do any research. So I'm starting to look at how many teachers are being arrested. And then within that subset, I'm seeing special education teacher after special education teacher. And I, I put a whole list up on my Medium profile. And again, it's outdated because there's been so many more arrests. And I can't, one person without a salary or a staff or... And I'm thinking, who who would molest a Down syndrome kid? And I'm thinking of the parents who, who have a child who has special needs and how hard it is to be a parent of a child who has special needs. And you finally find this great special education teacher that you can trust, that you think is, is great for you and your family and helping your child. You know, and then you find out the guy's been anally raping your six-year-old son. Because, not because he's attracted to a, a child with Down syndrome, because that child can't be a witness in court. I mean, it's just absolutely devastating. Yeah, it, it is. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's always shocking to see the, the brazen nature of some of these people uh, who do this, you know, who inject themselves right in the middle of, uh, you know, these daycares and schools and, and priests and churches, and we've seen it so much. Uh, you know, some of the examples, you know, you see what we have in the Catholic Church and the huge institutional problem they have of not turning uh, these pedophiles over to the authorities. Instead, they they, they try ge- geographical cures or whatever they're trying to do, the cover-ups. And then, you know, you said in universities, we see what, what happened in Penn State with Jerry Sandusky. I mean, this is a, a huge problem, and you saw how far and wide that, that was spread. And it, it's uh, it's so alarming when it happens. But uh, you, I wanted to talk back about what you mentioned about the government, uh, the government computers. Why don't they block this? If I remember right, there was a huge um, scandal not too long ago involving the Pentagon and all these people who were caught with the uh, child pornography on their computers or whatnot. And did you say why not have a um, a program or something where you know it would automatically block these kind of things? Yeah, yeah. So that was Operation Flickr. So that's a really good example. Again, that's a great example to bring up. There was some mainstream media about that. That was Anderson Cooper reported on it. Uh, and then it just dies. It just goes away. It gets covered up. It was over 5,000 guys. And it was an ICE operation. And I believe they were in Southeast Asia, never expecting to track this back to the Pentagon. And the brazenness, which you just mentioned, they're using their .mil email accounts, their professional email accounts, I don't even want to send a private email on my when I've worked in an institution on institutional emails about somebody's birthday party, let alone commit a crime, you know, on, on a military computer with a military email using your own credit card in your own name. The brazenness, I believe, comes out of a sense of impunity because they know they, they've got each other's backs. They know that they're not going to be held accountable because they're all protecting each other. So that that's another element of the crime that most people don't understand. Normally, when you commit a crime, again, please correct me if I'm wrong, you guys have much more experience in this as private investigators than I have. But when you commit a crime, you, you tend to commit that crime in secret. You don't want people to know that you've committed that crime. You cover up the crime that you've committed. That's typical, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> if you, I mean, yeah, if you're going to try to get away with it. Yeah, right. unless, you're, unless you're a moron. But, yeah, that's, uh, it's, right. Uh, yeah. Right, but not pedophiles. The minute that a pedophile commits a crime, he goes onto the Internet and he boasts and he brags and he shows videos of him raping a child, right, in these huge networks. So they want everybody to know about the crime they've committed. They publicly document 
and take criminal forensic evidence of the crime they're committing with videos and live streams and pictures. And then they broadcast, and often they'll broadcast their own face. You know, so that that's amazing. To to me, that's case closed. I mean, give me a case like that. We we can we can hey you know okay. But, but right. because because they feel that that they're not going to get caught or yeah they know they're not going to get and they talk about this on the chat lines what they know in in my understanding again I'm really happy to be to be corrected if I'm mistaken but and I'm not a frontline law enforcement working this crime so I'm the social scientist looking at secondary data from what I've seen from the criminal complaints and when I've talked to law enforcement who work the crime and prosecutors who work the crime who do sit in these chat rooms. They know the pedophiles say there's no way, you know, it's a very small chance that we'll be caught because there aren't enough cops working this crime. They don't have top technology. The pedophiles have better technology, and they just have sheer numbers right now. So, for example, this is a policy change that it could be easily made, which needs to happen. You have enormous a number of, of law enforcement on drugs compared to almost nothing on child exploitation. So one of my friends who's a private investigator, Trent Steele, who runs the Anti-Predator Project, which I profiled in the book just before Chapter 5, Trent was telling me that, um, and I don't have the numbers in my head correctly, but in Miami-Dade County where he works, now he works for child protection full-time during the day, and then pro bono at night he goes out undercover as a private investigator and works for free for families whose children have been taken and he would love to work full-time on this. He's trying to raise money to do that. Most There are also a lot of, sort of sidebar, there are a lot of scam organizations out there who do prey on vulnerable parents um, who have no intention of finding the children or know that they never will. Take the parents uh, uh, if, I, if I can interrupt you here, when you said when the children are taken, you mean by Child Protective Services or to... No, no, trafficked by... So like organized crime, Russian organized crime apparently okay. is very much in control in Miami, and the Latino uh, crime uh, units are all over Florida, too. So, no, no, not by child, okay, okay. by child traffickers. Yeah, sorry for... No, no, I, I, I just want to be clear on that, because... Oh, yeah. Okay, so, so uh, all right, okay, Go, continue. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to take you up so, well, so he was telling me that in Miami-Dade County, there's something like, and again, this isn't the exact number, something like 200 law enforcement who work drugs, the drug crime, and then there's like two that work child exploitation. You know, they're completely wow. overwhelmed. So one of the policy changes that I would like to see, too, which is easy, it's just a matter of political will, you've got a lot of these government employees who have committed this horrific crime of moral turpitude, and they're in prison, and they're still getting their eight to $10,000 to $12,000 a month retirement, government-funded retirement, because the Police Chiefs Retirement Association didn't revoke their retirement. Now, I say... If you're a government employee and you have been caught trading in child rape, right, which is what child pornography is, trafficking of children for the purposes of rape and abuse, that's a crime of moral turpitude. You don't deserve my tax money for your retirement. You don't get that retirement. It's automatically revoked. Then you could use that retirement to hire new law enforcement and prosecutors to work the crime. Because we need hundreds and hundreds more law enforcement on this crime. Absolutely, we do. And a reassignment of resources, I think, is in order uh, to to be sure. And and our guest, Dr. Lori Handran, author of 
ch- child rape. Excuse me. The um, information put forth in this book is will just just knock your socks off. I mean, it's just it, what an educational uh, and informational work. And, and we owe Dr. Lori Hanrahan a debt of gratitude for putting this together as difficult as that would be. And, of course, her website is lauriehanrahan.com. That's lauriehanrahan.com. In the book, Epidemic America's Trade in Child Rape, Lori, we got about um, nine and a half minutes left. I want to ask you, uh, what are some of the action items that people can do to stand up against the perpetrators of, of child trafficking and child pornography? Yeah, so the U.S. Sentencing Commission is one action item. There's another one for Betsy DeVos, who's the Secretary of of Education. So there is no public list right now of anybody who's been a public school employee from daycare all the way up to public universities who has been arrested for child pornography and convicted. We need to have a public list. The Department of Education could easily say, right, we're going to put 10 people on this. We're going to get a public list. If you were an educator and you've been arrested and charged for this crime, your name is on a national database that anybody can check because registered sex offenders are skipping state and getting jobs in other schools. And that was USA Today did a fabulous, also really great journalism. They did a year-long investigation. They looked at millions of reports, and they, they detailed, it's called passing the trash, which is exactly what you had said about the Catholic Church, well, we'll just pass this guy on so he'll become somebody else's problem. Right, so he'll continue to rape and destroy more children, right? Children's mm-hmm. lives are destroyed by this because a, uni- a school or a university doesn't want to have their reputation be tarnished. This is another mindset that we have to change. Protecting a criminal within your institution does not protect the reputation of that institution. Right. That makes you an organized crime institution. That makes you a criminal institution. Protecting criminals is not good for your reputation. You know, that, that's it. That's how it goes. You ought to Look at the Catholic Church. How has it been for their reputation? Not so good. If you are aware that a criminal is in your institution, that criminal should be exposed and reported. Then you should say we're going to install net clean is one of them. It's one I talk about a lot because I really like it. I'm not a tech person, too, so I don't, I'm not an IT person, so there may be better software out there. But it's a former Swedish Marine who developed this. It's, it's, you can buy it. It's being sold in America, too. And it's a blocking software so that anybody who attempted to trade in child rape on an organization's computer that had this involved, law enforcement would be immediately notified if the institution set that up so that law enforcement could be notified, which they should be. Um, so that's one, another thing. It would be great if everybody wrote or, or sent a tweet to Betsy DeVos and said, let's have a public list. If you were an educator and you've been convicted of this crime, let's make sure that you never get another job in education so that everybody's aware of your crime and it's easy to look these people up. Uh, another thing that people can do that would be extremely helpful, you see the arrest of somebody in your community. You look on the local news and you see that the local uh, fire chief has been arrested and it says, 30 counts of child pornography, which is meaningless to people. Nobody knows what that means. Go down to the courthouse. Get the criminal complaint. Go over to your local media station. Contact your local journalists and ask them to report on what's in the criminal complaint so that the community knows what this person was doing. That's really, really important. And if the journalists start to hear from their local community over and over and over again, we want you to report on the real nature of this person's crime, the journalists will start reporting on it. And if they do, 
people will start to become aware of how epidemic this is and how much all of our children are at risk. And I hope we'll start to protect our children. Otherwise, it's too clean, too clinical, too nice, too vague as well. And and I think you're you're right on the money there with that. I want to ask you about this. Uh, John just handed me an article. John Grisham says sentencing for child porn offenders is too harsh. They aren't real pedophiles. This was in an interview he did with The Telegraph. And I saw in your book, did you talk to John Grisham? No, but I talked to Peter Foster, who was the journalist with The Telegraph, who reported that story. So that's when I had just been um, wrongly terminated from my position at American University for for writing about this. And I was was really at a loss because when I was a professor at American University, I had a public platform, a small one, not a huge one, but I, I had a public legitimate platform and I could get published quite easily. And then as soon as I lost my position, nobody would publish me, right? Mm -hmm. So all my friends said, just put it up on Medium. And I thought, Medium's just a blog. Anybody can do that. I don't want to do that. That, That's not helpful. But they all said, well, you don't have a choice. Are you going to stop researching? (laughs) Are you going to stop writing? What are you going to do? So so they really pushed me. And some of my younger um, millennial friends were like, this is what what we're doing now. So that story on John Grisham was the first. If you go on my Medium profile, you scroll all the way down, and you'll see it's the very first one that I posted. And I just I couldn't believe, because it happened, there were a couple of news stories all at the same time. And again, I said, let's connect the dots. But so that John Grisham one was interesting. So I met Peter Foster. He was here in D.C. I called him up. I said, you got to be kidding me. I'm researching this stuff. you, you got to really explain what's happening, you know. Uh, this is not a drunk men who by accident push a wrong button on a computer and end up doing child porn, you cannot push a wrong button on your computer and suddenly get into child porn. It's hard to get into child porn chats. You have to first display all of your child pornography to the group that you're trying to get in so that they can determine that you're really a pedophile and that you're not law enforcement, and then they will let you in. You don't just get access to this stuff by accident. So, yeah, that was interesting. So Peter... Foster had told me, he's now back in, I think he's back in in London now, he's not in D.C. anymore, Uh, but he had told me it was really interesting because John Grissom was doing an interview, and they were videoing the interview, and it was just on one of his new books, had nothing to do with child pornography or pedophilia, and out of the blue, he starts saying that our criminal justice system is broken because all these men like him, you know, older men his age, have by accident done this and they're now being put in prisons and it's not fair because they never really committed a crime he sounds like a (laughs) uh, possibly an offender if not at the very least a sympathizer well rosie o'donnell called for him to meet immediately they she went on twitter and she said fbi go that's probable cause check his computers i mean people there there was like two days of like media outrage and then it died down and then he recanted his statement but it's out there i mean yeah i mean what I always say to people is the only people I know that want to protect pedophiles are other pedophiles. Because if you are not a pedophile, you find child rape to be the most abhorrent crime possible, and it outrages you. And you either want to take action, or you do that, which we talk I don't want to know at all. But the people, so I get three reactions from people when I tell them what I do for research. Either I don't want to know, or oh my God, this is so outrageous, what can I do to help? This is horrible, this is terrible, I'm going to take action. Or they start saying, well, those poor pedophiles. And then I know. It's, I feel like I can tell immediately. And I've had cops tell me that too. They say, 
you know, I don't want to profile people, but I can smell a pedophile the minute I, they're like, I know the, I know immediately there's a very distinct profile to a pedophile. Lori, we only got about two minutes left. Do you see, uh, at least we see it here, society trying to normalize this behavior to some extent? Yeah. It terrifies me. I, I mean, they're doing it. It's not by accident. They have a very strategic campaign right. where they, and I talk about that in the book, they've been rolling out this junk science where they're talking about the poor pedophile, the non-offending pedophile, the sympathy for pedophiles. Are you kidding? When you read what these people are doing in the criminal complaints, they say they want to see blood. They want to see the children cry. They want to see the children killed. They don't have any sympathy for these one- and two- and three-year-old children. I mean, a one-year-old baby being angrily raped, handcuffed, drugged, hanged by the ceiling. I mean, horrific stuff, horrific stuff. And they'll say, this is exciting, this turns me on. And then we've got these reports in Slate and other places saying we should feel sorry for pedophiles. The, the other thing that they're trying to do is they're trying to manipulate public perception and manipulate different voting blocks in America by saying, oh, well, we're just like LGBT. This is a sexual preference. This is not a sexual preference. This is a horrific crime. End of story. But, yeah, they're very strategic. And because there's so many very wealthy elite pedophiles, They've been doing a very good job at trying to normalize this crime. Yes, they have. Lori, I want to thank you so much for joining us. We only got about a minute left before the break. Again, Lori's book, Epidemic, America's Trade in Child Rape. And her website is lorihandran.com. That's Lori, L-O-R-I-H-A-N-D-R-A-H-A-N.com. Also on Twitter, lorihandran two. Uh, at Twitter, the number two at the end there. I want to thank you again so much, Lori, for taking the time out to Indeed. spend with us. It's been a, a very informative hour, and I'm sure uh, we, we'll have you back on at some point because this is, um, you know, just uh, one of many conversations that we should have about this. We thank haven't you. even thank we didn't even hit the. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, thank you guys so much for having me on. I really I'm grateful that you care about this crime and this issue, and that you're helping to spread the word about the war on our children. We've only just begun, believe me. Yeah. Thank you so much for your for your gift of time tonight, and thank you so much for your book. And uh, we'll be talking to talking to you again. Thank you, guys. Folks, network break. Back with Doug Papa. Buckle up. On this Friday edition of the Hagman Report, we have Doug Papa joining us in just a few moments. But first, I want to bring you a quick word from Green Innovative as Green Innovative Christmas sale ends at midnight, and this sale will be gone for a long time, so don't miss out. Now is the time to get your Green Innovative saltwater powered battery chargers with a ton of accessories. Go to greenovative.com and take 30% off the entire store using coupon code Hagman. And it's a, it's a great deal. Make sure that you stock up before they run out or their sale is over which is tonight at midnight 
Definitely do green innovative. I'm going to tell you, you know, lights out, you need power, there it is. It's the answer. And Green Innovative is, is, it's a great company. Green Innovative, and would you say the coupon code? Until midnight tonight. All right. Code Hagman. And and you know, all of the people we are partnered with, uh, Ready Made Resources, Bob Griswold, TC Joseph, This Generation Series. My goodness. He sent us some Christmas cookies. Yes, he did. What a great man. And what a great series of novels he's got. TC Joseph, This Generation Series. Uh, ready-made resources bob griswold satellite phone store look all of the links are on the right hand side of our website hagman report just go there and um when, when you're doing your last minute shopping hey you, you've got all of, and, and when you do that it helps us it helps keep it keeps it keep us on the air it helps the people who are selling the products it helps and it helps the recipients of the gifts you buy or if you're buying them for yourself it helps you now Doug Papa how many people saw Doug Papa on Tucker Carlson and if you didn't you you missed uh you missed it uh Doug Papa appeared on uh, Tucker Carlson and it seems like the issue of Vegas Joe has kind of fallen off people's radar the yes only... and no there's a few articles this I saw CNN actually put an article out there today well, or yesterday but, as to why uh, the lawsuits 450 family or victims lawsuits and why we still have no answers from the police but, but, but we're, hey wait a second we're promised to get answers yeah. right next month um, now I, I talked to Pat Campbell the KFAQ and um, you know it, it just this is so frustrating to me this the Las Vegas this black hole that is Las Vegas You've got this mass. I, man, I've got so many questions. And you, you look at the internet. You look at all of these uh, possibilities. Look, I, first of all, I, I will say this: Don't even tell me that no one was shot, no one was killed, okay? or they were all crisis actors there. Please don't tell me that, because that's just. That's not true. And how I know this, I've talked to people who were there. Now, if you want to talk about potentially multiple shooters, you want to talk about other scenarios, that's different. But the people who said that no one no one died or, you know, whatever, Las Vegas to me, is uh, an affront to the victims. And you can even talk about the, the many other lines. You know, look, I look at this, I look at um, uh, the alleged perpetrator, and I, I've got so many questions. 23 weapons in the room, selling of the, and Doug Papa talks about this, selling of the images. If you go to Baltimore Examiner, if you, I hope I got that right just now, but if you go to where he's written 35 plus articles on this, you'll be educated and I'll tell you something uh, Doug Papa, top cop um, uh, uh, detective of the year back in 86, 87 he knows and of course his time in Las Vegas with, with the security casino security this is our go-to guy in law enforcement um, so with that do we have him? Mm-hmm Yes, we do. Here, here I am rambling. I thought I was waiting for a you thumbs up. you got to look up. for the, okay. the cue from Eric. I didn't see it. 
I'm looking right at him. I didn't see it. I'm blocked by a monitor. Okay. Hey, Doug Papa, welcome. How you doing, Joe? Doug, glad Good. to see you back, Joe. You were sick the last time, I believe, I was on. Yeah, I had strep throat. It was uh, pretty nasty. But uh, Oh, yeah, that's pretty bad. Thanks for thanks for coming back. Yeah, well, where are we at with? Uh, by the way, good good job, good job on Tucker Carlson. Uh, wow, pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Thanks a lot. It was um, you know there wasn't enough time. It was seven minutes, but I got out two of the big things I want to talk about. Uh, where was the SWAT team? Why Levi Hancock had to go in that room by himself? Yep. And then about the force investigation team. So I got that out, which was uh, which was pretty good. But uh, yeah, he's got a, you know he's got a big show. He talks about other stuff. And I'm glad you said what you said I was listening to before I came on because I get so many emails. Um, it's just unbelievable when people write me emails with these conspiracy theories that are so far-fetched. You know, I don't care if somebody says, you know, I think there was another shooter across the street or something like that because, you know, I don't know. I don't know. We don't know nothing. Basically, we know nothing. Uh, we know we know there's a dead body in the room, supposedly Stephen Paddock from what they told us. Those people were shot, 58 dead. Over 500 injured and wounded. Um, pretty much that's all we know. But some of these emails I get are just extremely sad that people actually believe, just like you said. I mean, I got tons of them, and I just delete them as soon as I get them, that the people there weren't uh, killed. They were wax dummies and, and all this type of nonsense. You know, and people got to understand something. Um, you know, conspiracy theorists sometimes, they, they, they do bring a value if they leave it in the realm of common sense because they're asking questions. You know, was there another shooter? Could have been more shooters. But when you go into this nonsense, um, just like what you said at the beginning of the show, they, do they understand that that hurts us trying, people trying to find answers to what actually happened? Um, yeah. you know, yeah. and it's, it's a disgrace. I mean, you know, 58 people died and a bunch of others were, um, wounded and injured and a lot of them are going to live with those scars for the rest of their life, both emotional and physical. So, you know, it's pretty sad when you have to have people, you know, say this crazy stuff like that. Yeah. But, um, yeah. yeah. The credibility yeah. factor too. I, I just, I, I just want to mention because, you know, when you talk with people, um, who are, are family members of the victims, uh, or in, in one case, the victim, Victim of uh, of the shooting herself, you know, it, it's it, it's an affront to those people, and plus, it does make us look like a bunch of of you know lunatics, uh, right? We, we know. So, okay, now um, uh, when I talked to Pat Campbell at KFAQ out of Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, I, when I said that Doug Papa from the Baltimore Post Examiner said that there was no SWAT team response. His, he is, I mean, I could hear his, you know, mouth drop open. And he said, what? You know, I thought, I thought there was. And, and so I kind of parroted, or I referenced the uh, articles that, that you have written and uh, what you said last time. No SWAT response. You, you got, what, two SWAT teams in Vegas, two 20-man SWAT teams. And you, just because you had a member of the SWAT team, part of the response, police response, doesn't mean the SWAT team responded, right? I mean, that's what we have. That's correct. That's correct. What we know at this point, uh, because I can't, you can't get. I don't even call Metro up anymore because they don't, they don't say anything, you know. Um, so basically, what we know is this, okay? An hour and five minutes after the last shots were fired, Levi Hancock, who was the SWAT officer, the explosive breacher, um, ex, you know, blew the door and went in with two canine officers, Sergeant Fitzko and canine officer detective who was in uniform that night, Matthew Donaldson. Uh, that's who went into the room. 
Um, we don't know where the SWAT team was. Now, if you listen to the radio traffic, about an hour later, uh, after the last shot was fired, and some, and think this was about after they reached the room, you start hearing uh, the commander and stuff on the radio saying there's a SWAT team coming into the hotel into one of the stairwells. But this is um, well over an hour after um, everything had happened. They weren't there. The thing is with me is we know one thing. Levi Hancock, lone SWAT officer, went into that room with three guys. They were all heroes as far as I'm concerned. I even put that in my – I wrote two stories the other day. The, the last two stories I wrote were – um, basically hitting on the, the SWAT team and then the fact that, you know, the photographs were leaked. That was a story I wrote before and two of the photographs I know for a fact, I was told, were leaked by someone in the command, uh, staff of Sheriff Lombardo, which I think, and I gotta say this is a former police officer, I think it's a total disgrace. Now I got a lot of idiots sending me emails and making comments on my stories saying, you know, that you're ignorant because stuff gets leaked all the time. I don't, care if get, I don't care if stuff gets leaked all the time, okay? Compromising any criminal investigation, and that's what you do when you leak crime scene photographs to the press, okay? And you put them on, and they're on the Internet, they're all over the world, one or two days after the incident happened, okay? I don't care if it happens every day. It's, it's criminal and it's wrong. You jeopardize the criminal investigation by doing that. And somebody said, what's the big deal? How are they jeopardizing the investigation? Well... When you do an investigation, you don't know basically nothing. You're starting out from scratch. You may have a body, you may have dead people, weapons, and stuff like that. In this case, that's basically what they had. How how are you compromising the criminal investigation by doing that? Because suppose you're talking to suspects, and you want to know if they were in the room, and they start describing what's in the room. You want to make sure that the integrity of the entire crime scene, and the crime scene was the concert venue, the crime scene was his vehicle, the crime scene was his room 135 of the Mandalay Bay 32nd floor. So when you leak the crime scene photographs, and everybody's seen them, they've seen the guns, they've seen his body, they've seen the layout of the room, how can you tell if somebody's telling you, if you had a suspect, and say, I was in the room and I did this, and you can ask them specifics about the way the body looked and the way the room looked. So that's it. That's, that's it in a nutshell. You don't leak crime scene photographs. Uh, Why I, would they? Yeah, let, me, let me just say this. Uh, I worked a case in 1998. Uh, a, a local reporter leaked a crime scene photograph on a homicide. Two people. That what happened was it, it jeopardized the case. It, the, um, um, the the it was it never made it the, to the prosecution. Two people, two actors, were um, never prosecuted because of the contamination by that crime scene photograph and the chaos that it caused as a result of that. And that reporter is working at a major network now. That's all I'm going to say. But it, it's uh, you know and. I, I happen to know the family of the homicide victim, and it's just it's just ridiculous, and it, it angers me. So you're right, by the way. You know, Doug, you look at it this way. If I know reporters want to get a scoop and they want to get a story, and Boston 25, her name was Jackie Heinrich, I think. She's the one that got a hold of the police photographs, and she said it. They were police photographs, and it was an exclusive. Those were the first two photographs of two of the rifles that went out. Okay, and my sources that are talking to me telling me that came from someone at the Las Vegas Metro Police Department, command staff level, one of Sheriff Lobato's command staff officers, who was reportedly uh, knew this woman when she used to work here in Las Vegas a couple of years ago. That's where those two photographs come, and we know other photographs were leaked. Now, what the last story I wrote, um, what I said in there was that 
I have information from police sources that the body was rolled over. Okay, Stephen Paddock's body was was moved. It was rolled over. To the extent it was rolled over, I don't know. But it was rolled over because after they cleared the room, I mean, the SWAT team and the three guys cleared the room. They knew those were in there. They wanted to get um, identification off of him. So they rolled his body over, and then they put it back, I guess, where they thought it was within the position. But, you know, my question is, and the story is, yes, that may have been a legitimate reason to do that because they wanted identification. Well, my question was, you contaminated the crime scene to some extent because now you're messing with the body. And what I wrote in the story was the photographs that were leaked to the press of you could see the actual blood coming out of his body of the weapons. Uh, there's a revolver on top of his head when he's laying on the floor and, and his legs stretched out and everything. Were those photographs, obviously they were not taken, and I've, I've since learned, they were definitely not taken by crime scene investigator photographers. In other words, police photographers are not taken. Those were taken by people who were in that room with a cell phone, cell phone camera, okay? So um, my question was, and I raised it in the story, was, were those photographs taken before or after he was rolled over? Now, you know, yes, you don't see any blood smear when he's moving his head, so maybe it's before, but we don't know for sure when it was taken. And I guess it was a commander that gave the order for one of the officers to go ahead and, you know, find the ID on the body to move the body and roll it over. And my question was, well, did they was this being videotaped or photographed while they were doing that? Yeah, I don't know. That, that's, I do not know that. Exactly. Okay? I, exactly. I, yeah. I know. I know one. I know one thing, Doug. Okay. Normally, when a SWAT team does entries, okay, from what I was told from police sources, they have cameras, just like the body cameras. They have helmet cams or whatever they're using because they, you know, they want to study what they did later on. You know, sure. did we do the right tactics and stuff like that? So my question is here to the police department is, because I know they're listening to this, and I'll bring up something else I was told the other day. That kind of bothers me, but it doesn't, because I kind of knew maybe they were monitoring my cell phone um, months ago when I started writing stories. So, you know, anyway, I, I will say this, is some officers in your department and one of the command staff level um, released those photographs to the press. And for Sheriff Lombardo, at the November 2nd interview with KLAS-TV report, I think his name was George Knapp, um, he said to the report, he goes, you know, 50 people had the chain of those photographs and we're never going to be able to find it. Well, uh, that's not true, Sheriff. If you want to hire me part-time, I'll clear this up with you. and i clear this up and get you those guys within three days because they were not crime scene photographs uh, taken by the police photographer. They were taken, and I, I, I found this out after I did the story, by people who were in the room with cell phones. So it's not very hard to find out who this person was that leaked the photographs to uh, Jackie Heinlich at Boston 25, you just check their cell phone records and their internet traffic and their personal cell phone and find out who's been calling on, you know, conversation, boom, that's your first guy. Now, the other ones were obviously in the room. The one with the guns and stuff, they were released um, later on, but they were still released by police personnel before crime scene investigators and the photographers got there, from what I am told. And what makes matters worse is hallway of Mandalay Bay um, was a crime scene also because he shot outside the door allegedly at Campos and there were bullet holes all over the place so there were Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department officers who were guarding that hallway and this was within one or two days after the, the shooting um, and then we see the photograph leaked to the press of inside the room door 
and you see one of the assault rifles with the, I think it has number two and number four on it, which is the ID tag numbers that they put on them. Right. Somebody allowed that female photographer, photographer from Los Angeles to breach the integrity of the crime scene because she's a civilian and walk down to that door and hold her camera from the outside or stretch in the inside as far as she can go and snap some photographs and those hit the media. You know, to me, all these people should be fired and, and they should be charged because I think it's a crime. You are, you are obstructing justice depending on what state you're in. You know, you're interfering with a criminal investigation, but we don't know what's going on in Metro because obviously they're not telling us. You're not going to call them up. It's a personal matter if indeed they are doing anything. But I can guarantee you this. Those first two photographs was a command staff officer and that's what makes this even worse. Because the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department, and I don't want to go off track here, but I want to say this because I, I, I talked to some cops the other day, and they said, say this for us, and I'll say this. Okay, I've been in this town for 20 years, and plenty of Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department officers who are good cops have gotten screwed in their career because of corrupt sheriffs and corrupt staff officers, and you have to understand something. Everybody above, uh, from captain on down in the LVMPD has to take a competitive test to make rank. Above the rank of captain, the deputy chiefs, the associate chiefs, under sheriffs, and all that stuff, um, they're appointed by the, the sheriff, and he appoints them, and he can bust them down to captain or whatever he wants. So they're all his people that he puts in there. And over the years, I've talked to many Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department officers, and you know, there's corruption in Metro like there's corruption in every other police department. But then you have this other thing that happens in police departments all over the country, and it happens here with Metro. You have um, you have the good old boy system, okay? If they don't like you, they're going to come after you. And they will ruin your career. Uh, they will threaten your career. Um, but if command staff officers do the same type of stuff, they get away with it. Now, nobody should be committing domestic violence on their spouse or their girlfriend, specifically if you're a police officer. You should be fired immediately. There's, I have no bones about saying that. However, over the years, there's been allegations from sheriffs on down to associate sheriffs and deputy chiefs who've committed domestic violence in the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department, and it has been covered up. Okay, yes. Covered up because they can't be arrested. Why can't they be arrested? Because if you're arrested, number one, you're going to lose your job, and you can't carry a gun if you've got a domestic violence conviction, so you can never be a cop again. However, line-level officers and those below captain and below have been arrested for years. And it's hit, you know, it's hit in the newspapers, the journal, the Las Vegas Review Journal has done stories on it and the, the, the news programs. My point being is this, okay? When you have a police department, and I'm not talking about domestic violence because that's a crime, but I'm talking about, you know, other stuff, sexual harassment mm -hmm. with staff officers, okay? Mm -hmm. And they get away with it. And then other officers are busted down and they're sent to, you know, counseling and all this. I'm not saying it's right for either one. But why is it that command staff officers in the Las Vegas Metro Police Department over the 20 years that I've been here, and I spoke to thousands of cops since I've been here, and many of them are my friends, and I know this happened, I know this is true, they get away with it. But the line-level officers, captain and above, they get slammed and they get their careers ruined and they get busted. Okay. Now, people say you talk about corruption and misconduct in the police department, but you got to look at the line-level officers, the guys and girls that are out there, the ladies and gentlemen, that are out there doing their job every day, 
How do you think that affects morale in a police department? Not only in Metro, but any police department. When they know that, you know what? If we do this little violation, or we do this, or you know, we violate a policy, we're going to get slammed. But the people up at the top, because I call them the good old boys. I saw it at the, the Loud County Sheriff's Office when I lost my job for that stuff I, we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And it happens in the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department all the time, and it happens in police departments all across the country. And it's not right, okay? It's not right, because you got officers that are out there putting their life on the line, and the morale, and I heard that the morale in the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department right now is is gutter level. It's it's low, okay? That's, uh, and, and it has mm-hmm. been low for a long time, because what you have here with sheriffs is this, okay? You cannot run for sheriff and get in and get elected in Clark County unless you have the support of one, the casinos, because they give you the big bucks, and um, of course the general population, but you have to have the support of the incumbent sheriff who decides he's not running. A case in point. I'll go back 20-something years ago when I first got here. Jerry Keller was the sheriff of Clark County. He decided he was not going to run. So he supported um, his under-sheriff or associate sheriff, I remember his time, Bill Young. And, of course, Bill Young gets support from the casinos and and the population because the incumbent sheriff says he's a good guy and they want him. And I'm not saying they're not good guys, but I'm saying then he gets elected. Bill Young gets elected. Then a couple years later, he decides he doesn't want to run for re-election. So he supports Doug Gillespie, okay? And Doug Gillespie gets in. And then a couple years later, two terms, I think he ran for two terms, Doug Gillespie, he decides he's not running for sheriff. So he supports his man, Joe Lombardo. And then Joe Lobato gets elected. Okay? I'm not saying anything about these people as an individual. I know some things about these guys that they've done. Okay? And a lot of things were covered up. Domestic violence and, and other allegations like that. But what I'm saying is this. Okay? You got somebody, say, a captain or below, who wants to run for sheriff on the police department. They have tenure. They have a good, you know, they have good reputation. They have, um, you know, good history in the police department. They cannot get the chance to even run for sheriff. I mean, you can run, but you're not going to get in because you have to have the support from the sheriff and once the sheriff says, the incumbent sheriff says, I'm not running, I'm supporting this guy, then he gets the backing from the casinos and the business people and, you know, the news media and stuff like that and, of course, the population. So so that's the problem. I don't understand this, okay? I've been here 20 years. They need to, they need to go to the General Assembly and they need to um, get rid of the sheriff, any sheriff, running the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department because the sheriff is an elected official, okay? And what they did is years ago they merged the sheriff's office and the city police from Las Vegas into, and this was, I think, in the late 70s, early 80s, they um, they merged it into the... But they kept the elected sheriff controlling the police department. They need to get rid of that, okay? They need to appoint a police chief the commission, the county board of supervisors, appoint a police chief and get rid of this. Why do I say that? Sure, you can have problems with police chiefs, and they're going to be corrupt, and they're going to do their stuff, okay? But when you have an elected official, and I said this all the time, I said on a radio, uh, a talk show something the other day, somebody was asking me, and I said, I don't care how good a cop you were, okay? Once you run for sheriff, you're now a politician, okay? And you put the, you may wear the uniform, but you're a politician, People gave you bucks to get in there. Favors, just like a regular politician, favors need to be returned. 
okay? And I'm not only talking about Metro, I'm talking about across the country. Sure. So the problem you have with Metro is it's the police department, and people always say, why is a sheriff running the police department? Because that's the way it is out here. You know, it's that's the way it happened when they formed the police department. It's okay, we'll still have the elected sheriff running. Now, what's, what's good about Metro, which I didn't have when I lost my job 25 years ago in Lowndes County, is they are civil service, okay, and they have a union. And we didn't have civil service, and we couldn't belong to a union because we were deputy sheriffs. But when they merged the police department, um, they became sort of like, you know, deputies and policemen, the, the Metropolitan Police, it's combined. But they're protected by civil service to some extent, and they're protected by the union. They have, I think it's the police uh, protection union, whatever they call it out here. But it's a union. We didn't have that uh, in Loud County, and I still believe to this day they do not have it because the state code back in Virginia was that you couldn't be a deputy sheriff and belong to any collective bargaining union, and um, we didn't have civil service. So that's why so many guys, even to this day, back there here, still get screwed in their careers and stuff. But, but you know, that, that, that's my beef with, with this is that, you know, when, when you got upper management in police departments and sheriff's office getting away with stuff that lower line level officers would be arrested and lose their job, yet they don't. I mean, there was an allegation a, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, there was a captain that just retired, supposedly got stopped over at the airport, um, you know, off duty driving and he was under the influence. He hit a car on a fender bender. And from what I was told, uh, the police officer that got there drove him home. Okay. Now, if that was Officer Smith, or Lieutenant Smith or Sergeant Smith, um, he would probably have been arrested and he would have lost his job, okay? But when the line-level officers see this BS that goes on all the time, it ruins the morale on the department and it's not right, okay? Because I, I lived I lost my job because of corruption and, um, and, and this kind of stuff that goes on in the sheriff's office. So that stuff is not right, okay? And the allegations against upper management of the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department has been ongoing for the 20 years I've been here. You know, domestic violence that was covered up, sexual assault that was covered up by upper management people, allegedly including some of the sheriffs, okay? Uh, behavior that's, that's just, just just unbelievable. Some of the behavior that you hear is just unbelievable. And this is upper management people. But if when a cop does it, you know, you lose your job yeah, or you get night. busted down at rank or yep. you're never going to get promoted again, you know, because you're not with that clique that's up at the top above the rank of captain. So, and it's not only specific to, to Metro here, it's specific to uh, all police bombs across the country because I get calls from cops all the time across the country and I've heard horror stories. I want to say one thing before I forget because I was going to mention this. I spoke to Frank Serpico last night. Nah. He says hello. Okay. But he's going to be on a radio show in Baltimore, I think today or tomorrow, the next couple of days. Because there's something that happened. i got to talk about this for a, for a minute or two. Sure. There was a, a detective, his last name was Suda. He was killed a couple of weeks ago in Baltimore, a few days before he was supposed to testify yeah, against yep. a bunch of crooked cops. Okay? Yep, yep. Now, oh, go ahead. No, no, I, I, we know the case. Uh, and and uh, please continue. I'm sorry. We know the case. Okay. Um, it's, it's, there's so much... That's wrong with this. And then Frank brought up a lot of stuff that he's going to talk about when he was on that radio. He's going to be on a Baltimore radio show, and he's you know from his home in New York, and he's going to talk about it because he said, "Should I go on?" I said, "Yes, go on," because the the guy's dead. He has no voice. But it, it's getting crazier. I mean, his partner was off. His you know his normal partner was off that night. He had another guy for a partner. 
who, from what I'm hearing, from what I read, you know, was running across the street to hide while this guy's getting shot. Yep. Now they're trying to say he committed suicide. They're bringing that old allegations up, but yet there's three rounds at the scene, and is is uh, whether the gun's missing or there, I don't know. But you know, how would you commit suicide and shoot yourself three times? I mean, you know, in the head. So that's all a bunch of nonsense. And he was supposed to testify either at the grand jury or in court, just like a few days after he was killed. And the big thing here is, while the other guy's across the street hiding behind a car and running the opposite direction, his partner that night, from what I'm told, the assailant got away. And I guess it's the first time in, when I heard, and I don't know, I heard it's the first time in a long time in Baltimore where so much time has gone by and they actually haven't arrested the perpetrator who you know, allegedly shot uh, Detective Suda. So, and it gets more and more, you know, the, uh, the police chief is coming out making st- uh, statements that, that just, are just bizarre. Anyway, this detective was dead. They buried him a couple, of, I think two weeks ago. They had the, the funeral service out there in Baltimore. There's so much wrong with this. Um, it's, it, it, it just bothers me. I mean, he was going to testify against a bunch of crooked cops. Uh, and if this turns out to be, um, somebody was put up to hit him or kill him and cops were involved it's going to be another black mark on law enforcement Indeed. and and that's why when i hear stories like this and i hear stories from cops they call me up all the time and they tell me stuff i got to tell you something you know my story took like 20 you know okay the news came out you know 25 years ago and did it you you hear about frank serpico you hear about other cops but every day there's there's hundreds of cops across this country that are going through the same thing and you never hear about them you never hear about it because it never makes the news you know, um, you cannot talk against um, another cop. I don't care if it's a line-level cop or it's a police chief or a sheriff or whatever you want to say it. Your police career is ruined. And in a case like this, I hope to God that they're saying it was something. They were investigating him and this partner that was with them that night was not his regular partner. I think they were investigating um, a triple homicide or something. And then somebody approached the, the de- detective Suter who was ended up getting killed. And then his, his partner, I guess they got video, he's like running across the street, hiding behind a car for cover or something, and supposedly calling in. You know, I, I'll tell you this. You know what? No cop wants to get killed. But, you know, it's just like being in the military. If my partner is getting shot, I am not going to be across the street running the other direction, hiding by a car. It means I'm going to get shot with him, and then we're both going to get shot, and we're both going to die together. But this whole thing out in Baltimore really bothers me. So anyway, Frank, I talked to Frank last night, and um, he's going to be on a show talking about it out there in Baltimore. We'll we'll, so, uh, we'll promote Doug. We'll we'll promote uh, Frank's appearance. Uh, uh, in fact, if there's an archive of of his appearance, and he certainly next time you talk to him, tell him, tell him to come back on uh, our our show. We'll invite him back on. John uh, uh, certainly Frank Serpico, good guy. But but you're right. I mean, th- th- this erodes the confidence. Of of the uh, rank and file of law enforcement, and it's it's shameful. I mean, well, it does more than that. But and what happened here in Baltimore, um, Doug? I don't know if you where you saw the the suicide claims, but it, from everything I <laughs> yeah. saw, like you said, there's part a videotape which I'm not. It shows at least the partner running across the street behind a car. Right. We also know right. that the the fallen police officer died with his hand clutched to his radio, um, yeah. and he was shot with his own gun. But um, right. Yeah, it's very unfortunate, and he was set to testify, as you said, in a grand jury uh, of uh, for Some, corrupt yeah. in, in case involving other officers and officer corruption. And it's a shame that we don't have the 
the information on this. And this has been sketchy since day one, since I heard it. We had we had a very similar, just real quick, we had a very similar case back in 1980 here in uh, our hometown with the police officer getting killed. That was the I think maybe the last second, the last police officer that was killed in in, in this area. Um, yeah, it's it's. Uh, but in uh, Baltimore, I mean, the the unsolved homicides in Baltimore yeah. are so much higher than anywhere else in the country, if oh, yeah. what I remember. And the crimes there are are. You know, with the relationship between the police and the community has been so frayed in recent years that it's it's just a mess there. But you know, the first thing I thought of when I saw the story was, is this other police involvement? Did that testimony he was going to give have something to do with his death? And I don't, yeah, I'm afraid we won't see the answers. That's going to be as commission to see how that goes out. But the biggest thing with this with me is. Um, is the guy running away? Is the mm-hmm. partner running across the street? I'm like, hey, you know what? You know, nobody becomes a police officer to die. Okay, they want to go home to their wife and their family, just like a truck driver and everybody else. But when you pin in that badge, you have um, you, you're saying that if you're gonna, Jesus Christ, I mean, if you got to run away when another police officer is getting shot. And I don't know this guy, okay? I don't know who he is or anything like that. That, but I'm saying I seen the video where he's running away and the other guy is getting shot. Mm. And then what makes it worse, add insult to industry, uh, to injury, is the suspect gets away. Yeah, yeah. and then he doesn't even go after the suspect. So now we have a, a dead detective um, and a suspect who killed him, and he's not anywhere to be found. Now I can guarantee you one thing: if this was a setup job. Where some criminal that was involved with these crooked cops, and I'm not saying this is this is just my point of view, that they got a hold of one of their criminal buddies and said, "Listen, you know, go out and do this and make it look like this." Um, this guy's long gone out of the state of Maryland. I can guarantee you. it'd be a miracle if he's still there. He'd and be stupid cleared, if he's, he's probably gone. You know, they cleared the partner cop of any wrongdoing or uh, any kind of infraction as far as procedure, which was kind of. Um Surprising, knowing that he ran away. Yeah. No, I don't. You know, I I don't know. I mean, it's you know, that's in his conscience. Whatever he did, I wasn't there. I just saw the videotape of him running across the street, and his partner's getting shot. And I'm like, hey, you know, you don't leave your partner. I'm sorry. No, you, you know, you nobody, don't, you like don't. I said, nobody wants to die. But you know, if my partner's getting shot, I'm we're going to be there together. That's and right. Whether you, it was both die or we survive it, but I'm certainly not going to run away. So anyway, I leave that at that. No, I want to get no. back to the um, yeah. Let, let, this. Go ahead. Uh, no, I, I just uh, where are we at with Vegas here? I mean, we we we've got. Uh, well, I'm not going to tick off everything here, but but uh, we've got no answers. Basically, bottom line, we don't know what the hell. We we don't know anything. We don't know anything. You know, Doug, what even makes it worse is that we don't know anything. Is the other day, and I did this in one of the stories. Uh, Kevin McMahill, who's the undersheriff, is the number two guy, um, Lobato's right hand man, was on Nevada Public Radio. And this was right after I was on the Tucker Carlson show on Fox. And he said that sometime in January, they're going to release a report about the incident. Okay. Um, You know, and I'm going to tell you right now, don't expect too much. Okay. I think, I think it's going to go something like this. Okay. Um, Paddock was a lone shooter. He was not connected to anybody. He committed suicide. And pretty much that's it. And they may have what they believe a motive or something why he did it to come out and say something like that, and they'll justify why they said it. They are not going to release anything. They're not going to release anything to corroborate anything in that report. I do not believe, just like they haven't released, and I say they, the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department, 
and MGM Resorts International, the owners of the Mandalay Bay Hotel, which was the site of the worst mass shooting in American history. And uh, I want to say this, this too. There's nothing. This media out here, okay? And I, I did a tweet last night on this. It get over this, okay? First, they call this the uh, the one October event, okay? And I wrote, a, I put that in one of my stories. It was not an event. It was a massacre. An event is a party, okay? 58 people are dead, okay? We don't have any answers. Over 500 um, were injured and wounded. So they went from the 1 October event, because of course you can't call it a massacre or anything like that because it'll hurt the image of the city. So you clean it up and you do a politically correct statement. Yes, the Las Vegas Convention and Visitors Authority controls the media in this town, okay? So you called it the 1 October event. And then you hear now the 1 October shooting, okay? Do it the way it's supposed to be. Put the one back where it's supposed to go, October 1st massacre. That's what this was, and it will always be that, whether we find out the truth or we don't find out the truth. Because what's this whole thing about? It's about the reputation and the tourism for Las Vegas and the reputation of the casinos in this town. That's what this whole thing is about. Neither the LVMPD or MGM Resorts International have released one, not one bit of evidence since day one to corroborate anything they have said, whether it was the statement that MGM came out with, statements they've made to the news, and anything Sheriff Lombardo and under Sheriff McMahill have said, we have seen nothing. We're supposed to be like a bunch of sheep listening to this coming out, or everything that's coming out of their mouth, and with, with MGM written in a statement, and say, well, it sounds right, so we'll go ahead and believe it. Okay, and why am I saying this? And I'll go back to this. I think I hit on this the last time I was on the show. Okay? Sheriff Lombardo and under Sheriff McMahill from the start have given misleading, deceptive, and all-out lies to the, pre to the public. I say the press, the public. The press is the public. The public, okay? And they try to justify it by saying, you know, we didn't know this a week ago, and now we know this, and three weeks later we changed the timeline, and now we checked in here, and two weeks later checked in over there, and this is what we don't know. You know something, Sheriff Lombardo? Him, because he's never going to talk to me. I even put it in my story the other day. You want to want to interview with me? Do it, and I'll put in verbatim what you said, okay? You made your entire department across the world Look, look like the Keystone Cops. Yes, and I'm not saying that. That's in writings all over the world because of this. Because what you should have done was keep your big, stupid mouth shut, just like the FBI did. They made one statement, and they didn't say anything else. And you come out and you say, listen, this is a major investigation. You give us time to do this, whether it's a couple of weeks, a couple of months, and when it's over with, we'll go ahead and, and lay everything out that we got. But every day, sometimes twice a day, he had to have his face on television because he's up for re-election next year. And everything that came out of his mouth, he either contradicted in another statement or was just an all-out lie or was deceptive. Now, since October 13th, we didn't hear anything from him. Now, on November 2nd, he did this one-on-one -on -one television interview with KLS-TV. And Nap, the interviewer, the reporter was sitting across from within three feet. Okay, and and in that interview was basically, um, it was apparently that we're trying to get him some credibility back. Okay, but it blew up in his face. Why? 
not with anybody else because I wrote a story on it. And the story I wrote was after that was Sheriff was is Sheriff Joe Lombardo incompetent, lying, or both. Okay. And the reason why I said that was because of four or five things he said in that interview, and he didn't get challenged on it. Now, if you're any type of competent investigative journalist, or even a kid out of college, okay, and you're interviewing the man who runs the Las Vegas Metron Police Department, and he makes a statement like this, and I don't have the exact words here, but I'm about to paraphrase. He makes something like, you know, George, um, in 2015, he's talking about Paddock. He lost a lot of money. So, you know, I think that could have been a factor in why he did what he did. And then it was like 15, 20 minutes later, he's back on that same subject, and he says, you know, he lost a lot of money in 2015, but I don't think it had a factor in what he did. And then you got this guy sitting there who was supposed to be an investigative journalist, and he doesn't challenge him on that. And I would have said, wait a minute, Sheriff. You know, 20 minutes ago, you just said the opposite. So which is it? Did he didn't? But he just lets it go, because obviously you can't make the sheriff look, you know, stupid. So then he makes this other statement that, you know, uh, this, and I think I got it over here verbatim and something. But anyway, he says, you know, we wanted to get into that room immediately because we didn't want him reloading magazines and opening fire again. Now, you'd think the reporter that's interviewing him would have said to him, well, wait a minute, Sheriff. Um, what did you just say? Well, what I just said, if you didn't hear me, is that we had to get into that room immediately because we didn't want him reloading magazines and opening fire on the crowd. Well, we know that didn't happen. Immediately, it happened. they didn't do it for an hour and five minutes later. So why didn't that reporter from the news station out here challenge him and say, wait a minute, Sheriff, that's not true. You Immediately, you waited an hour and five minutes. So when I wrote my story, I said, so where was the urgency from Sheriff Lombardo, based on his comments, for the public safety, if he said they wanted to get in there immediately, yet they waited an hour and five minutes, and he doesn't get challenged on it. And then it gets even worse, because then a couple of minutes later, he says, but you got to understand something, George, or something like that. He says, had he opened fire again, we would have breached the door immediately. Now, you think again he would get challenged on that. But no, he, the reporter asks him a totally different question to get him off the subject. Now, I would have said to him, wait a minute, Chef, what did you just say? Well, Doug, if you didn't hear what I said, I just said that had he opened fire again, we would have breached the room immediately. And then I would have said to him, really, Sheriff? So you would have waited till he opened fire, which means he's shooting more people out the window, if indeed he was the one that did it, okay? Because we don't know that. We don't know anything right yeah, now. Exactly. So that's what, I would have, that's what I would have said. So you would have waited till he shot more people, then you would have tried to breach the door to get in. Whether that would have taken you 20 seconds, 30 seconds, a minute, nobody knows. And then another question I, I would have raised, being that he said that out of his own mouth, and I put verbatim in my story when I wrote that story exactly what he said, and, and that's basically what he said. I would have said, well, let me ask you another question, Sheriff, being that that was the stupidest remark I ever heard in my life, that you would have waited till he opened fire again and more people were getting shot, and then you would have hit the door. But now you just said that to me, that those officers that were in that stairwell, okay, were fully capable of breaching that door the minute that they got into that stairwell. Now, I said in my stories, all those officers that night, okay, and I'm wearing this shirt over here. It's, I got it from a police officer. It's a Las Vegas Metropolitan sweatshirt. That's their badge over here. I'm doing that to honor all the officers at the ground, and everybody did a great job that night. Even the officers that went into the room with Levi Hancock, they right. were all heroes. Because on the radio traffic, and I listen to radio traffic, you could hear them in the hall that they wanted to go in, but they were told, no, stand by, wait till SWAT makes a plan. Well, 
SWAT didn't make a plan. Only one SWAT guy was in that hallway, and that was Levi Hancock. We know that that happened, okay? We know that happened. So, so they waited. Now, they have this training after Columbine. Police departments across the country went to all types of training because nobody wanted, you know, they waited outside the school while kids were getting killed because they had to wait for the, quote, SWAT team. Like, the SWAT guys are some superhero cops, and every other cops are a bunch of idiots and don't know how to do their job. So back then, is you had to wait for SWAT. Because a regular cop can't go in because SWAT is like Superman. So while they were waiting outside, kids were getting killed. So after Columbine, all the police departments across the country changed their procedure, and they came up to the, the, the strike team type of thing. Is the first three or four, and it depends on the departments, the policies, but usually it's the first three or four officers on the, she- on the scene of an active shooter. They go in. They don't wait for SWAT. They go in as a three and four because that's the way they're trained. And then, you know, years ago they had this training called MACTAC. And even some retired cop sent me a nasty email. I threw LinkedIn a couple of weeks ago and said, I didn't know what I was talking about because you don't know the procedures and this, that. <laughs> These guys are MACTAC training. And MAC stands for multi-assault counterterrorism training. But, you know, they're all, most of the cops are trained on that. And I said, well, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. I said, because now you just reinforce what I've been saying and what the sheriff said. So when the sheriff told the reporter that had Paddock opened fire again, they would have gone into that room immediately, meeting the officers in the hall. So what the sheriff just told the public is that those officers that were in that hall, three, four, five, six, and I think later it was like eight of them, within minutes, they were up there within minutes after Paddock stopped firing, okay, were fully capable and equipped to breach room 32135. But they didn't do it because they had to wait for SWAT. That's my point on this whole thing, okay? And everybody says, you know, they're looking at after the fact, that there was a dead body, Paddock was in the room dead. My point is, those cops that night did not know how many people were in that room, that Stephen Paddock was in that room, that it would be a dead body in that room. All they knew was that was the windows, allegedly, that the shots were coming out of. So, SWAT. And we know that SWAT wasn't there. So my question to the sheriff is this, because nobody out here is asking him that question. None of the media. Sheriff, where was the SWAT team that night that only Levi Hancock responded to that one standwell, okay? Where were the rest of the guys? Were they all drunk at home? They were doing something else? Or were they on another operation somewhere in this town that you do not want to talk about? Okay, Uh. that's my answer to him. I don't know. All I know is it's like a big secret. We know over an hour later they start showing up. But my question is this. If Levi Hancock got into that stairwell with the explosives, okay, to breach the door, where did he come from? Because it was a Sunday night. Now, the SWAT team out here doesn't work like some departments. They have you on a SWAT team, but you're in patrol also. When you get a SWAT call out, you leave what you're doing. SWAT team out here, they're SWAT guys. They're permanently assigned to SWAT. They do search warrants. They do training and all this type of stuff. Dignitary protection sometimes when dignitaries come in. So where was Levi Hancock that night that he got to the Mandalay Bay? You know, they went in an hour and five minutes later, but that not any more of his officers on the team, the SWAT team, could have got there the way he did. Now, there was one other guy on the radio that you hear early on is Zebra 10, and he's there, but he's in another stairwell. And my question, too, is that is, why didn't he leave that stairwell to at least go in with Tim? But I don't know. But there, there was no SWAT team that the Sheriff McMahill told us for a week that the SWAT team made entry. And then they do the 60 Minutes show, and we find out, lo and behold, 
there wasn't any SWAT team. There was Levi Hancock, lone SWAT officer who was not on the 60 Minutes show, but they showed a photograph of him, and the two canine officers, Sergeant Fitzko and Officer Newton and Detective Matthew um, Donaldson, who was in uniform, and I was, whatever he is, but I already was a detective. So those are the three guys that go in with Levi Hancock. And my question to this day, until I die, until I get some answers, is where was at least five or six other SWAT guys that could have went into that room with Levi Hancock? And the reason why I said that in the story I wrote is even Matthew Donaldson makes some statements on 60 Minutes, and I got the transcript when he says, you know, they were concerned that there would be other, there was, he was concerned people would be jumping out of the woodwork, okay? Yeah. Which means this, this should have been a full SWAT team entry, period, amen. And that's who should have win. But they weren't there. Levi had to go in by himself. And another interesting fact, that, and I just I saw this the other day and I put it in the story, is I overlooked because I didn't look at the transcript of the 60 Minutes, is um, one of the officers says, when they were in the room and they were clearing it, he didn't want to go in front of the windows because he didn't want to get shot by the sniper. I saw that. Okay? Yeah. So now, I put that in my story. So now we know that an hour and five minutes after the last shot was fired, that there were snipers positioned somewhere outside, either in a helicopter or some other position, because they had to, you know, get the sh look into the windows, and it's 32 stories up. We don't know where they were, but we do know, according to what he said on 60 Minutes, this officer, he would he didn't want to go in front of the windows when they were clearing the room because he didn't get shot by a sniper. So, and I put that in the story. Now, why didn't anybody at command level in the Las Vegas Metron Police Department, and I put that in the other story, too, that I wrote, that incompetence led to the massacre, why didn't they think about when they were making the plans for that concert opened on the corner, looking up at, the, at those towers and say, you know what, we better have some uh, snipers ready in case somebody does attack from above. But they didn't think about it. And that's what command level officers under Sheriff Lombardo are supposed to be getting paid to do to protect the public safety is to think about that type of incident it should occur. They didn't do it. And what about saying maybe we should have some strike teams already in place at Mandalay Bay, the Luxor, and the hotels, towers that surrounded that concert venue. So if something did happen, they could immediately respond. Okay? Now I want to say one thing, I know we're getting close to the end of the show. Okay? And I keep harping on this because it doesn't make any sense to me. MGM Resorts International came out with a statement early on when all this stuff was going on, the battle between them and, and the police department is when Campos got shot, okay? I don't know when Campos got shot. I'll tell you this. Common sense would tell any person that nobody is going to approach a door when they hear gunshots coming from inside. And if you're shooting 223s and 308s from a hotel room outside a window, you are going to hear that in the hallway. So I'll tell you this. I don't know. I wasn't up there with Campos, but I'll tell you this. I doubt seriously Jose, Jose, uh, Jesus Campos was approaching that door when any type of firing was going on. Now, when they put him on the comedy show, the Ellen DeGeneres show, because they didn't want him being uh, talked to and interviewed by anybody that knows what they're talking about, um, he said that when he was checking the barricaded door, he had to walk towards Paddock's door because his door was on the end. He's walking towards it. But Paddock doesn't see him. My question, too, is why, if he had the cameras set up? But right. then he goes into the stairwell, which was next to the suite, and then he says when he came out, the door slammed, and he's walking away down the hall is when he said he, the shots came out and he got shot. But early on, Kevin McMahill said to the public 
that Campos got shot while he was approaching the door. So we know that was another lie. Okay, that didn't happen that way. So so that's what I'm talking about. This whole thing, I don't know when Campos got shot. I still don't know. All I know is that he's got to have some type of common sense that he's not going to be walking down a hall approaching a door if he hears gunshots coming from inside. So I would safely say this, that when Campos um, got shot, there was no firing before as he approached that door. So okay. you, can, it, it, you can determine whether that was 9.59 or 10.05. You know, it's it, it does. It, I don't know. We don't know. Because we haven't seen anything to back up anything that the police or MGM has said. I want to get back to this thing before I forget with MGM's statement. Go ahead. Um, they put out the statement, and they said, um, no. They, they they went against the police department. That's, that's this battle of the three weeks when they changed the police, changed the timelines three times. And the last time they changed it was would help MGM Resorts International in a civil suit. But the MGM came out and said this. There were Metro officers inside the hotel with our security at the time Jesus Campos was calling in over the radio that there were shots. And they said in their statement that our security team and Metro responded immediately up there. Well, I don't know how that could be possible. Unless the three Metro guys were complete idiots, and they're not idiots because I, I know Metro guys, is because the dispatcher for almost 17, 18 minutes, did not know that the shots were coming from the 32nd floor anywhere around 135. So if you believe the MGM statement that when the, sh the shots were fired at Campos, he got on the radio, the security radio, and standing next to the security guys, because they were supposedly there for some other call, the Metro officers, they heard that you know Campos over the radio saying, I'm getting shot. That's what MGM said. They all responded is this. Whether they did or not, I don't know. Videotape in the hotel may show that. Is this. If that is true, okay, then how come the Metro Police Dispatcher did not know that the shots were coming from 32-135 until way after the shots stopped and it was like I, I timed it. I timed it down to the millisecond. From the first officer that called in shots fired at the concert venue, it was over 18 minutes and the next traffic you hear is the officers are on the 32nd floor. We have a security officer shot standing by the elevator, and he says the shots definitely coming from 135. My point being is this. If Jesus Campos was calling over that radio when he got shot, okay, which the sheriff now says was about 10.05 when Paddock opened fire, that's the last version that we heard, then how come nobody at Metro Dispatch knew for over 15, 16, 17 minutes that the shots were coming? Wouldn't those police officers get on the radio and say, Wait, the shots are coming from 32. We're responding up there. But you never hear that over the radio. And the dispatcher, for all that time, still doesn't know where the exact shots were coming from, except when that one officer gets on the radio, and he got there real fast. He says, I'm at 31. I think the shots were coming from 32. But my point is, where is this traffic from the police officers who are with Mandalay Bay security officers? How come you don't hear them on the radio saying, we're responding up to 32, even before that other cop got on the radio when he was on 31, and say, they're definitely coming because we got an officer up there and he's being shot at. You never hear that. And the confirmation that it's actually 135 isn't for 17 to 18 minutes, definitely confirmed about 18 minutes and 30 seconds after the first officer at the concert venue fired the shots. I listened to these tapes 20 ways to Sunday, and I timed it. So that MGM statement bothers me. You know, it, there's something's wrong here. The problem we got with this, Doug and Joe, is that right now we know absolutely nothing. We know nothing. Like I said, we have a dead body. They're saying he shot himself. He's the only one. That's what they're telling us. And they're coming out reporting in January. What they're not going to do, and I only got a couple of minutes, so I've got to bring this up. 
they are appealing the release of the documents, either the coroner's report, and they don't want anything else released, Metro Police Department. The judge back in September, the judge, Clark County District Court judge, said that the coroner's reports are public records, so what did the coroner do? To release them, he said, we're not releasing them, we're going to appeal it. So he goes to the Clark County Commission, and they agree with him, they're using taxpayers' money to appeal that decision so coroner's reports are not public records, when the judge already ruled that they are. And then what does Metro do the other day? they got attorneys right now fighting the release of any other documents because the five newspapers, it was the Las Vegas Journal a couple of weeks ago, the Washington Post, L.A. Times, the New York Times, Associated Press, and I think it was KT and the television station here, filed a, uh, a petition in federal court and in local court, district court. They want everything released, not only from uh, Mandalay Bay. They want all the homicide reports. They want everything, reports, tapes, everything, and the police are fighting that to get it. And that's not going to be resolved until sometimes after the New Year's. I don't, I don't think the judge is going to say you're not, they're not getting anything. And I don't think we're going to see a whole lot of corroboration even when that report comes out in January. And it's, um, it, it's a disgusting shame. This is about one thing here. And people got to know it. It's not about the police department and it's not about the casinos. Well, it is, but it, to me, it's not. It's about 58 people who are dead and their survivors that don't have answers to the worst mass shooting in American history, and January 1st is three months, and all we got is basically nothing. And what have we got all this time? Lies, misconceptions, convoluted stories, and contradictions from the sheriff and the number two guy running this police department. It's a total, absolute disgrace. Now, I heard something today, I know we could have been caught to cut it off here, but from one of the cops that talked to me told me that I better watch my cell phone because they they are dying to find out where my sources are. And we already knew that from you know when I got called by the IA a couple of weeks ago. I already talked about that. But you know they said most likely your cell phone is tapped and your text messages. So I use the computer. But I'll tell you this: I can guarantee they don't have a legal wiretap. If indeed that is true, if I ever find out that the Las Vegas Metro Police Department and I was told it was possibly criminal intelligence unit, okay, are tapping my cell phone without a court order, and if the FBI, you're listening, listen to this, I'll, I'll, to my last breath, I will make sure everybody knows about it, because this is a bunch of BS. My question is, what the hell are you afraid of? What there the hell go. are you afraid of? Okay. It, yep, what is it, the yep. big deal in this there investigation that you have to do that, and you worry about sources? How about worrying about your own people who compromise the integrity of a criminal investigation and release photographs to the press and allow a civilian photographer to go into a crime scene area and about the sheriff making statements that make absolutely no sense to the public? How about an internal affairs investigation to uncover that? Absolutely. Doug, we're out of time, man. I'll tell you what, you you were just on fire. We didn't want to interrupt. Thank you. We're we're absolutely out of time. Please come Thanks, back. Guys. Please come back. And by the way, um the uh the law enforcement authorities who are watching this and, and recording this, do me a favor, send us a transcript. Be, be, be a pal, will you? And you're right. By the way, I I don't like veiled threats either. Um, to have you on, to, when you come on, I don't like veiled threats, getting them, uh, you know, uh, saying that, hey, you know, you, you ought not to be talking about this. It's something, uh, maybe you and I should talk about. Doug, thank you so much. Appreciate it, guys. All right. Take care, Joe, Doug. Thanks a lot. All right. Thanks, Doug. Interesting. Thanks, All right. Good night, everyone. See you next week.